pill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? Southern Sense Talk Radio, your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett, and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So, sit back, relax, and remember... Southern sense is common sense. first impulse. If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-44290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. 
and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patreon Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290, or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina, and oh, half a dozen other places I forget even where, Curtis. Oh, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, and welcome aboard to another show, Curtis. Today, Curtis, we and my co-host, of course, Curtis C.S. Bennett, Today's show, because it's going to be an entire show dedicated to the memory of Patriot Day, known also as 9-11. We got ourselves some great guests, uh, Curtis, uh, people that want to talk about this issue, uh, what led up to it, what has occurred afterwards. So we're going to have our friend Dan Perkins join us at the same time with our old-time friend Mike Cutler, uh, he also has his own show here on Blog Talk Radio. And Dan Perkins has his own TV and radio show also that you can find at uh, danperkins.guru and Mike Cutler at michaelcutler.net. And we're also going to have a special guest that's going to pop in at the first half of the show from the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Uh, so we have a special guest popping in. I will add them to the, uh, the stream notes later on after the show because that was just a last-minute thing. And then Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation will close off the show. So, again, we've got ourselves a nonstop rocking show, but a very, very, very somber one. So, Curtis, we've got a lot to talk about. That's true, and it is, uh, as um, they said during World War II, a day that we will remember in infamy, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I believe, said that. And I've never forgotten it. And uh, hopefully, as a nation, we will never forget it. I hear there's talk about making this like a holiday, which I'm not really for because I don't want people having picnics and, and holiday, you know, sales on a day this somber, you know. But that's yeah, what they're talking about. It is, and, you know, uh, it is a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, a lot of the uh, memorial services uh, were not held as they traditionally would be held. And New York City is a prime example of that. And um, it's, it, that's very disheartening, honestly. Uh, I, I think that if we can go to Wally World and grocery shop, we should, absolutely should, be able to celebrate, not to celebrate, but to have memorials in honor of those that have died on 9-11, those that have suffered uh, because of it, the family, friends, relatives, people whose lives will never, ever be the same because of that one day and because terrorism creeped into our nation. Um, I think it's important that we do remember that and we don't stop the traditional uh, remembrances. That's right. Um, I can see celebrating something like, you know, Independence Day or Labor Day or, you know, when we, you know, when World War um, II was over. But like I said, days like 
people got assassinated on, like Martin Luther King or something like that, or or what happened on 9-11, I think those should be days of remembrance, not a national holiday where, like I said, people's focus then is on barbecues and, and picnics and things like that. Well, I've, I've put together a series of recordings, and um, if these things load up, oh, great. Tell me that they didn't load up. I just be, bear with me as I try to find where the heck these recordings just went. Uh, oh, here we go. It's, it's, not, it's not the computer. It's Annie screwing up. All right. I'm going to start playing some of these recordings that came about on 9-11. And this first one is a news broadcast as the events began to unfold. So here we do our dedication to Patriots Day to the remembrance of 9-11, 19 years ago, today, in less than two hours, our nation was forever changed. Yes, it was. Just uh, bear with me as we try to get this all going. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. 
want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, baby. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. We have a, I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's the Kurt. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his wings. Roger. He's rocking back and forth. We're five six eight six five five five. You stay away from that aircraft. Go north as fast as you can. United nine three. Have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes. Where did he land? He did not land. Oh, he's down. Yes, yeah, somewhere up northeast of Camp David. hard to watch. For those who are watching on Facebook, you can see the video that I put together for this. This is audio tapes that were released after almost 10 years, well actually 10 years after 9-11. These are the audio tapes they finally released to the public. And this is up on Twitter at ITNs. Before disaster, the recordings of air traffic controllers, pilots and hijackers released for the first time slowly realizing the horror that's taking place. American 11 heading for the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We hear some funny noises. We're trying to get him. You have him. No. 
All right. Um, we also have following up United 93 flight where 40 brave Americans did what the impossible. They did what true Americans do. They sacrificed themselves for our nation. 43 civilians. And no better way to exemplify the courage of these 40 people by the iconic words of Todd Beamer. And this is an interview with his mother after 9-11. Remembering 9-11. On September 11th, 40 people on Flight 93 saved the lives of countless others on the ground. Todd Beamer was on that flight. Though it no longer tells time, Todd's watch now speaks volumes about courage. It was a day we'll never forget. Now there's a place to remember, together. The 9-11 Memorial Museum. Plan your visit at 911 Memorial. When I took the call over, there was a soft-spoken, calm gentleman on the other end. He told me that there's three people that have taken over the flight. At that point, I asked him his name. He told me, Todd Beeman. He was from Cranberry, New Jersey. Did you make a conscious decision not to tell Todd about the World Trade Center? Why? Yes, because um, I wanted him to have hope. I wanted him to think that he still had a chance. I didn't want him to feel like it was just totally hopeless and he definitely didn't have a choice and he knew he was going to die. I didn't want him to have that feeling. When he wanted to pray, was your sense then that that he knew that? Yes, I did. I felt that he knew at that time because he had said, oh, Jesus, help us. And then he said, Lisa, would you recite the Lord's Prayer with me? And I knew that he knew at that time that it wasn't much left for him to do. What do you think that um, this country needs to know about the men and women who are on board Flight 93? They're all heroes in my eyes. They really are. They all pitched together, and they did what they thought was the best thing to do at that time. And um, I feel that Todd played a great role in that because when he told the guys, are you ready, I assumed that they were waiting on his cue. Then they responded to him, and he said, okay, let's roll. And would you please help me welcome his wife, Lisa Beamer, here tonight. She called me that Saturday morning. I told her, I said, you have two boys, David and Andrew? She said, yes, yes, I do. I said, you're expecting a third child? She said, yes, he told you all of that. I said, yes, he did. And he wanted me to let you know that he loved you and his family very much. And I gave her a message and kept my promise. All right, I apologize. That was not his mother. That was the 911 operator. But who can forget 
President George Bush standing at ground zero, megaphone in hand, as he encouraged the men and women at ground zero to continue their recovery rescue. President Obama visited ground zero Thursday to lay a wreath and visit with victims of the 9-11 attack. It was a quiet bookend to the visit 10 years ago by his predecessor, George W. Bush, who promised to bring those who planned the attack on the World Trade Center to justice. I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss Final cut for this dedication is President George Bush in the Oval Office on 9-11-2001. This is from the National Archives. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat. But they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot vent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world, and no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature, and we responded with the best of America with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. Our military is powerful and it's prepared. Our emergency teams are working in New York City and Washington, D.C. 
to help with local rescue efforts. Our first priority is to get help to those who have been injured and to take every precaution to protect our citizens at home and around the world from further attacks. The functions of our government continue without interruption. Federal agencies in Washington, which had to be evacuated today, are reopening for essential personnel tonight and will be open for business tomorrow. Our financial institutions remain strong and the American economy will be open for business as well. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. I appreciate so very much the members of Congress who have joined me in strongly condemning these attacks. And on behalf of the American people, I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down any enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you, good night, and God bless America. Today's show is dedicated in the memory of 9-11-2001. It's also dedicated to all the men and women that died on that day, giving their lives to save others. We dedicate this show to the brave first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency workers, to the steel workers, to the men and women that came out of retirement to help at Ground Zero, be it in Pentagon, Shanklin, or New York City. It is dedicated to the brave men and women that serve in our nation from the birth of its glory through today and into its magnificent future. And there's no better song to dedicate to this, the courage of this nation, not the rioting that you see on the streets today, but what we have built together as one people under God. We dedicate this song by Todd Ellen Harrington. My name is America. May God bless each and everyone. Never been free. Now my 
door's always open to dreamers and friends. Right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Facebook, WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina, all over the place. Just go to the name of the show, Southern Sense, put a dash in the southern sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Radio Chickadee, along with my co host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And bringing along my favorite curmudgeon in my life for the last 30-some-odd years, <laughs> fellow friend and nutjob New Yorker, Mike Cutler. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? 
I'm terrific, Andy. Boy, this is an intro I haven't had. <laughs> Great to join you. Oh, man. Um, I, 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 unfortunately, our next guest is trying to call in on my cell phone, so I'm going to have to figure out how to tell him you're calling the wrong number, Dan. You should know by now. Anyway, <laughs> just just to introduce you to um, uh, the listeners, uh, you and I have known each other since, what, the end of 1988-1989, so we've got a long history together. Yes, we do, and and both of us, of course, law enforcement professionals. You were a New York City police officer. I was an INS special agent, um, and um, unfortunately, we share a um, one of our colleagues in law enforcement, brothers in arms in common, and that, of course, Robert Machati. Uh, your former partner, and um, I wound up deporting the guy who came back. He was a Panamanian drug dealer uh, and because of sanctuary policies. We didn't know, immigration didn't know he was back, even though he was arrested a couple of times by the PD. And then he wound up uh, in a confrontation with Officer Vishadi, who was 24 at the time, and he killed him. And um, hammering home the obvious point that immigration law violations are not victimless crimes. Well, I just want to make one small correction. I knew Bob Machadi as a friend through the Columbia Association. I never worked with him. Oh, okay. He wasn't in the same community. Okay. But he was Sorry, a friend. I, I, my Sorry. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> We're allowed one a show. <laughs> that's it. Okay. <laughs> so that's it. After that, the trap door opens, I guess. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, yeah. um, I just I'm did a whole uh, dedication. Well, I don't know if you caught the dedication I did. The whole I started off with different cuts from 9/11/2001. You know, the released audio tapes, the 911 tapes, uh, the talk of the 911 operator about Todd Beener and the other people along Flight 93 and sh- that crashed in Shanklin. And it's really, really difficult for me. I mean, even though I wasn't there in 2001, I was already retired. And you yourself, you were home with the line of duty injuries. Um, we couldn't be there at Grand Zero, but it it still impacts us very deeply to know our brethren in blue were there. It was not just law enforcement. It was the emergency workers that had just been melded into the uh, fire department and the fire department there on the square at uh, Grand Zero. The steel workers that were working on near buildings that came running over to help. And the men and women from across the nation from Dallas, from California, from Detroit. I mean, you had Marines that put their uniforms on. They were sitting home, just to put their retirement papers in, and all they were watching was the clock go down, and they would have been retired. Put their uniforms back on and went to Ground Zero to help them search and rescue. Yep. And one Marine, yep. because he grabbed his buddy, was able to save two New York City cops who spent 20 hours trapped under 20 feet of concrete. The, the stories of heroism on that day and the days that followed is phenomenal. Well, it is. And, and, you know, the kind of life, if you want to call them, also civilians are just rushed to the scene. Uh, and, and meanwhile, um, you know, we've known for years that we ran the risk of terrorism. You know, I, I've testified before numerous congressional hearings. I did my very first hearing, Annie, as I think you know, back on May 20th, 1997, on the issue of visa fraud and immigration fraud because of the 93 bombing at the Trade Center that killed six, injured over 1,000, almost brought the powers down, created a half a billion in damage. And a month earlier, the shooting at the CIA by Kansi, a Pakistani national who um, filed for political asylum and then bought into a courier service. So that truck 
had a permit to park in the parking lot of the CIA complex in Virginia. And in January of 93, he drove that truck into the complex, jumped out of the truck with his AK-47, opened fire, killed two CIA officers, wounded three others, uh, and then he fled the country. And that's something that's important for folks to understand. When foreign nationals come to America and they commit crimes, whether it's an act of terrorism, whether it's a rape, whether it's a murder, typically they escape. They have an escape hatch Americans don't have. They go back to their home country. And all too frequently, we do not have extradition agreements with all the countries of the world, so they are outside the long reach of the law. Of course, in the case of cancer, given the nature of his crime, uh, our intelligence people working with Pakistani intelligence located him, arrested him, brought him back to the state. He stood trial, was found guilty, he was executed, but it didn't bring back the dead, nor did it heal the wounds. And what's amazing to me, and there were other attacks in New York. We had Ari Abistam, a young boy who was in a van being driven to a yeshiva, a Jewish parochial school, shot simply because he was in a van that was obviously from a Jewish school by another Muslim extremist. We had the killing of Rabbi Meir Kahana. We had airliners hijacked around the world, flown to the desert and blown up. We had a Navy sailor taken off one of those ships. One of those airplanes uh, in the 70s shot the head and thrown out the door like trash. So we knew that the terrorists were gunning for us. We also know yeah, my, that terrorists my, were using America as a cash cow. Well, I, I got to ask my co-host, um, Curtis, if you can, uh, Dan Perkins is having a problem calling in. If you can dial out to him on that number I gave you, please. Okay, I will. I appreciate it. No, we we had you had Klinghopper being tossed off the the, the boat. You had the Pan Am hijacking. We had we had no Pan Am one hundred three blown up. The Pan Am one hundred three blown up. Yeah. We've known since the early seventies that radical Islam was looking out to go after and bring down the mighty Satan, the United States of America, because we represent everything that is antithetical to true Islam. We knew this, and yet we continue to ignore it time and time and time again. Why? Well, right. What and is so well, about that, that little piece well, of sand out there? I'll, 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 I'll get to that in a moment, but, 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 but I also wanted to make one other point. You know, everyone seems to think that it's easy to spot terrorists and so forth. Someone once said that an effective terrorist like an effective spy, and someone describes a good spy as someone who wouldn't attract the attention of a waiter or a waitress at a greasy spoon diner. In fact, they might even be working in that diner. We had a case where we raided, my, my colleagues and I raided a restaurant in Staten Island. One of the guys who worked in the kitchen escaped through a transom in the basement. We had rounded up like 10 or 12 illegal aliens. This guy took off. It took us 20 minutes to catch him. He was literally running on the roofs of the cars in the parking lot, sliding under other cars. Well, we took him back to his apartment to get his passport. We saw bags filled to the brim with um, coupons for things he could never possibly want to use. Uh, women's sanitary products, uh, dog food, diapers, you name it, and he had no good explanation. We found out a couple of months after we deported him, because it was a TV program, they didn't even disseminate the intelligence within our agency, that Yasser Arafat, the head of the PLO, was using coupon fraud to fund terrorism around the world. So what they were doing is people from the Middle East were buying up these little bodegas, little grocery stores, and they were cashing in coupons. And the way it was discovered, some retired law enforcement people who worked for major corporations, they typically hire former cops, former agents, 
they noticed some of these stores were cashing in thousands of dollars of coupons for a product where they only sold maybe, for argument's sake, and I'm just pulling this out of my left ear, uh, let's say they have a record that one store bought last year 100 boxes of Cheerios. But when they matched up the coupons, they had redeemed coupons for $20,000 worth of Cheerios. And they said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. So they started to dig, and that was where the discovery was made. So the, these folks were going into the local mosques. They were meeting in people's houses. They were dumping coupons on the table. The owners of these bodegas were then sending the coupons to the companies saying, we want, to, we want the money for these coupons because that's how it works. So Yasser Arafat was gathering up millions of dollars. And when these individuals supporting terrorism, because not everyone who's a terrorist blows up a building or hijacks an airplane, not everyone who wears an Air Force uniform, for example, is a pilot. Only about 5% of the members of the Air Force who are in uniform actually work in the cockpit. They do support work. So when these people who were doing the support work of gathering the money for terrorists were caught, they started setting fire to these bodegas, and many times people were burned or killed. And I would argue these were acts of terrorism. So this was really widespread. That was going on in the early 80s. So you would have thought. And you would have thought that after 9-11, when George W. Bush put together what he called the Department of the Homeland Surrender, I came to call it the Department of the Homeland Surrender, that he would have focused on immigration, and he did not. In fact, well, what Bush I, did was to create an agency that made it impossible to enforce the immigration laws. And I had testified before a hearing where John Hostetler, who was a Republican, he was the chairman of the House Immigration Subcommittee, excoriated the Bush administration and said that the administration, the Bush administration, gave us immigration incoherence and made it impossible to enforce the immigration laws or secure the borders and protect Americans. Think about that. And why? Well, well Mike, of- Mike, take, a, take a breath, Mike. Take a deep breath, because we okay. want to welcome okay. our okay. other guests joining us here. Uh, we want to welcome aboard Dan Perkins. Uh, Dan, good afternoon. You are a man about town with your own radio show, just like Mike Cutler has your, your TV commentator, writer of numerous books, and the last one deals with terrorist gold. You know, we were doing this whole show today, dedication to 9-11, the memorial of it, which we now call Patriots Day. Um, you go from the military aspect as well as that of a researcher and author, and you write about Islamic terrorism extensively in your books. You know, how much did you right. take out of Cutler has testified before the 9-11 Commission and Congress, I don't know, Mike, a dozen times at least by now. Um, how much oh, I have you think taken it's probably I think it's about 17 times, and they've also asked for written documentation for additional hearings where I wasn't called as a witness before I provided depositions for the record. Well, how much did you do to help expose it through your books, uh, Dan? Uh, I, I, Eddie, thank you for having me on the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, I would say um, research is extremely important to me, even in doing fiction. I would say, without question, the largest chunk of time that I spent in writing these four books was all in the research, trying to verify even though i was writing fiction i wanted to make sure that the historical events that were were referred to were in fact uh credible Uh, i even say in the beginning of the first book all of the technology that is used 
for weapons in these four books is true and it's available. You can search it on the internet and you can buy a lot of it in the spy store in Washington, D.C. So research is very important. This is the thing that, Annie, that bothers me more than anything else about what's going on in the American media today. They don't do their homework. Just as I, as an example, we had a Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic uh, issue a story last week, which now he's kind of backing away from, that said that the president, when he was in Paris, uh, refused to go to a cemetery, American cemetery, because he thought the, uh, the, the dead soldiers in the ground were losers. And uh, he had four unnamed sources who he refused to reveal, nor did they have any evidence to give him uh, to prove their point. And we had, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Annie, when we look at the media today, how stupid they are, just how stupid they are and how stupid the Democratic Party is. And I, made that, I, I did that for emphasis because it's important and I'm going to prove it. Joe Biden came out based on the story, and I wrote a commentary on it this week, on the story that was in Atlantic. And he goes after the president as a, and in the body of his comments, he used if true. So he has attacked the president uh, and, and demanded that he apologize, Gold Star and Blue Star. Uh, families and the American people for what he said in this meeting. And when John Bolton, who everybody knows is not a friend of the president, came out, said, I was at the meeting and no such language took place, the credibility of what the Atlantic did <clears throat> or didn't do is, is, is in deep in question. And now they're in the process that they have to backtrack on it, which I said that was probably going to happen. And yet, time and time again, the news media doesn't do their homework. <clears throat> now we take Joe Biden, who I raised the question, did the people at Atlantic talk to the Biden camp before they released the article? And by the way, this incident took place two years ago, supposedly. Uh, why did they wait for till 60 days before the campaign, the election, to bring this out? But anyway, what happened was that Joe Biden either was fed the story before or knew of it after it came out and went after the president. And I wrote a, a piece that said, the title of the piece was hashtag Joe must go. I believe that, uh, that we're now seeing that the story was false. I believe that Joe Biden, the president should demand from Joe Biden, first of all, an apology to all of those families, gold star and blue star families who he insulted. He owes an apology to the President of the United States. And because he or his campaign chose not to do his homework, he can't be trusted to make important decisions. He well, needs me, to resign from Dan, the campaign. Dan, let me, let me ask you. This is Mike. Hi, Dan. Um, yes, sir. Here's my question. I, I think you're, you're giving him far too much credit. See, I don't think he's making mistakes or lazy or failing to do his homework. I think he's a pathological liar. And by the way, full disclosure, a registered Democrat. These people aren't Democrats. They're seditionists and anarchists and fascists. You know, I, I've arrested many bad guys, but we had them on tape. 
we had a guy that did actual kidnapping, and by accident, we were doing surveillance on the block for a drug deal. We actually caught the actual kidnapping where this guy with a machine gun throws a guy in the back of the car and handcuffs him. The cops, as the car goes down the block, it's pulled up, pulled the car over, and they pulled the guy up. Well, interrogating him, he said, I never did it. wasn't me. Until he saw the videotape, and he said, well, you got me. He admitted it. He actually got so worked up, he, he tossed his cookies in a garbage can and said, can I be a cooperator? Because the guy had a rap sheet a mile long. He's looking at life in jail. And he said, you got me. Joe Biden and Cuomo and de Blasio make these statements on television. Um, um, Nancy Pelosi, who, by the way, had an incredibly bad hair day just the other day, don't you think? Makes all these amazing statements. Go to Chinatown. If you don't go to Chinatown, you're a xenophobe. The president is a xenophobe. And, and now they claim that the president ignored it while they were sounding the alarm. Never mind that you've got videos of them making these statements that, that prove that they're liars, and they insist on maintaining the lie, playing us for a bunch of idiots. So the point is, is that, that they didn't do their homework or they're willfully misrepresenting material facts. I would argue they're doing it purposely and hoping that the American people won't do their due diligence and won't do their homework and accept blatant lies as the truth. They rewrite history every time they open their mouths, which is a nice way of saying lying. Um, Very, very appreciative of what you said. I'm going to be a part of a roundtable on television on Sunday. I think it will be broadcast on the 15th. Uh, And, and, it's it's a it's a group that's putting together a series of broadcasts between now and election day, and I've been invited on uh, uh, three other people on a panel to talk about uh, what I think is going what 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 has happened to the political system in the United States. Uh, I believe, and I have written several times over the last several years, that <clears throat> uh, the Democrats, whether they were legally in power or not have created a playbook that was given to every Republican who came into office on a federal level of how they're supposed to behave when the Democrats ultimately attack them for being against what the Democrats stand for. And I use in, in, in my most recent commentary, I use John McCain and I use Mitt Romney. John McCain mm. refused during his entire presidential campaign for himself or anybody in his campaign to use Barack Obama's middle name, Hussein. And he did so because he thought it would be perceived as being um, anti-Islamic. And so he never confronted uh, the fact that Obama had a middle name and it was Iranian or Middle Eastern or whatever. Uh, And so he he hamstrung himself because of his concern about being politically correct in speaking of Barack Obama, that it affected the ability of him to have an effective campaign against Donald Trump. Now we move oh, yeah, forward but, but, to the next. But all the things you think just, they really don't do their homework or they're willfully lying. That's, that's the fundamental issue, because to me, they know what the facts are. They won't use By the way, Obama himself um, got upset that some sheriff, when he introduced him, whatever, used the middle name. And then when he was sworn in the second time, if you remember, he himself used his middle name. So there's a lot of gamesmanship, and there's a lot of lying, and I'm arguing that the lies are willful. 
And it's not political correctness. I don't believe in political correctness. It's Orwellian newspeak, altering words to alter perceptions of, of the fact and the reality of situations. Like, we don't use the word alien. We call them immigrants. The term alien right. isn't a pejorative. It just means any person, not a citizen or national of the United States. And the word alien is part of the DREAM Act, Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. So we're altering language so that the American people are being conned. It's just like people say Joe Biden is a, is a nice guy. No, he's not. Con artists have to be nice guys. That's how they swindle people. If the guy comes off as a jerk, you're not going to give him the right time of day, not your money. Here we're asking right. people to vote for the future of their children and their grandchildren. He can't come across as being crass. He has to have a nice smile because people are stupid. I mean, that's the only common conclusion you could come to. People will say, how could the guy be a mass murderer? He has such a wonderful smile. How many times have you heard that on television? Right, right. The, but the issue that you're talking about, if, put it in a different way, is that the Democratic agenda is that the charge is more important than the truth. Example, when Mitt Romney was running for uh, president, then the leader of the House, Democratic, excuse me, Democratic, uh, Harry Reid, the Democratic leader of the Senate, said to reporters, quote, I've been told that Mitt Romney doesn't pay his taxes. And when the reporters asked uh, him, so what is your source? He said, quote, go ask Mitt Romney if he's ever paid his taxes. And so what did the reporters do? They ignored the fact that, that Harry Reid had no basis in fact, the story, <laughs> was more important. And they go to Mitt Romney and ask him, well, is it true that you haven't paid your taxes? And he spends a huge amount of time defending that false accusation. That's the way. So, yeah, they're lying and they're misleading and, and they're manipulating the, the American people. The follow-up when they asked Harry Reid after the election, you made a false accusation. Harry Reid smiled into the cameras. He goes, yeah, well, who won? Right. No, I, 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 I – you, you, you know, got it you know, out before did I you ever could. Did the movie Man of the Year with Robin Williams where he's running for president because of a computer glitch? It looks like he won. His advisor says to him, accuse your opponent of having sex with farm animals. He said, that's the Lyndon B. Johnson tactic. He said, how in the world do you prove that the guy has sex with farm animals? He said, no, that's the beauty of it. You don't have to prove anything, but your opponent will spend the rest of his campaign trying to prove he didn't. And this is this that's is exactly uh, the, what, the, what what Rob, that was the page out of that book that was used by Harry Reid and the Democrat Party. And so what what's happened in the last four years is that the Democrats have tried every possible falsehood, lie, misleading statement to try and get Donald Trump to resign, quit, and to lose his followers. And it hasn't so why do you worked. Think they're so panicked about it because he used to be a supporter of the Democrat Party. Look at all the people he contributed to. Why are they panicked about Donald Trump? By the way, why aren't the Republicans helping Donald Trump? Better question. Well, uh, I, I can I can attempt to try and answer that. If you uh, yeah. uh, recently I saw I saw a Democrat news person said, I don't understand when Donald Trump had control of the House and the Senate for the first two years of his presidency why i couldn't get everything done he wanted and i my response to the reporter was and how many times did the republicans agree with the democrats that donald trump was an illegitimate president 
the Democrats and the Republicans both went after the, the Hillary-generated Russia story. And so he had very little support. What is amazing but to why? me and should but be why? But why? Because the Democrats, the, Democrats were, the Democrats were not going to give him anything, and they were doing everything. And the more they tried to defeat him using their typical tactics of accusations as opposed to truth, the stronger he got and the yes, stronger but, he's but, gotten. But you're missing my point, Dan. Look, when we're told the immigration system is failing, for example, and immigration is the number one issue, not because I was an agent, but if you look at the 9-11 Commission report, none of the attacks, not only 9-11, but other attacks they looked at could have been carried out without multiple failures of the immigration system. In fact, my very first fraud case, when I was a brand-new agent, they gave me what was supposed to be a nonsense case. What do you give the new guy on the block, you know? That case turned into a major terrorism investigation. We prevented the bombing of an oil refinery in Israel. We had an Israeli with an altered visa come into the United States back in 1976. So that was my introduction to the nexus between immigration and terrorism, and I worked other terrorism cases. So why in the world aren't we securing the border? And we're always told the immigration system is broken. I got a shocker for everybody. The immigration system is not broken. Not only isn't it broken, it's the most efficient system in the entire federal government if you see it as a delivery system. It delivers an unlimited supply of cheap, foreign, exploitable labor, and not just the illegals, but the H-1B visa program. In fact, Bob Goodland, I had a major argument with Goodland. We, we spoke for about a half hour. He was the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And so as the, as the chairman of the judiciary, he's a Republican, he oversees immigration. And what did he keep pushing for? H-1B visas. Well, I confronted him about that in a private meeting. And Goodland said to me, that he was an immigration lawyer. Well, if you look up Bob Goodlatte, he made a fortune as an H-1B visa attorney in a multi-state practice, and then he shared with me the fact that his son would love him to bring in thousands upon thousands of brilliant programmers from India. But my late wife, Ms. Recipes, was brilliant, died of cancer in, in her 30s, but she was a brilliant programmer, so were her friends, and these were all American people with MBAs in computer science, most of them graduated Phi Beta Kappa, I said, what about them? Are they chopped liver? Well, I looked up Bobby Goodlatte. Bobby Goodlatte, Bob Goodlatte's son, is a gazillionaire who made his money as, as, with Facebook and Zuckerberg. So, so when we talk about the unlimited cheap labor, that's item one. Item two, an unlimited number of foreign tourists. The Chamber of Commerce wants that. On 9-11, we had 26 visa waiver countries. It should have ended after the 9-11 Commission said tighten up the visa process. Well, guess what? They added countries. Donald Trump actually made Poland number 39. But, you know, why is it that right after 9-11, Bush added more countries to the visa waiver program? Obama really knocked it off the rails. Why? We know that the visa process is supposed to protect us. It also delivers, and this is what's really critical for everyone to understand, an unlimited supply of clients for immigration law firms. This isn't about getting aliens out of the shadows comprehensive reform. It's about getting them into the law offices of immigration law firms. And by the way, the current chairperson of the House Immigration Subcommittee, where I testified at least eight times, and I've testified in front of Zoe Lofgren, she's an immigration lawyer with a strong connection to the American Immigration Lawyers Association. So when you look at the flood of people and the money that they move around the world, the remittances, Mexico counts on those remittances. Last year they got over $30 billion from their workers in the United States and other countries do as well, the banks move the money, the banks get a piece of the action. 
So everyone literally is making out like bandits by moving workers around the world, moving narcotics around the world. Open borders are an anathema to these globalists. And what was Trump's major promise? I'm going to build a border wall. Well, that was the last thing they wanted to hear. Now, understand when they talked about putting up the electric fence, virtual, uh, the virtual fence. I was on with Lou Dobbs. I was a regular on Lou's show. I used to be on with him sometimes twice and three times a week. He said, Mike, what do you think of the virtual fence? I said, well, it's going to do what it's supposed to stop virtually nobody. They put up drones, which did nothing, but they were very expensive. Why would you use drones that don't work? Because it looks good for the voters. And meanwhile, they give lots of money to companies that maybe are making campaign contributions. But at the end of the day, it does not stop the flood of aliens. What stops the flood? The wall. Is the wall working? Yes. And I guarantee you that if, God forbid, Biden wins the election, the wall is going to come down. Now, we know from congressional hearings that you've got terrorists operating throughout Latin America through Hezbollah and Hamas, Iran directing them. In fact, just yesterday, the Justice Department and Homeland Security announced that immigration agents from the INS, from ICE rather, working with the Brazilian authorities, arrested an individual from Iran who specialized bringing in aliens from Iran into the United States and Canada using counterfeit passports, exactly the tactic used by the terrorists not only on 9-11 but in other cases. So you would think if they're moving people across the southern border and we're talking about terrorists, everyone should be on the same page, secure the border. They don't want to secure a border. In fact, the Republicans offered a bill, and it was called the First Secure the Border Act, as though we only had four border states. We have 50 border states. Any state with an international airport or lies on the northern or southern borders or the coastline are all border states. First Secure the Border Act. And you know what it's called for? Achieving 90% operational control over the high traffic areas. That's not controlling the border or securing it. Securing the border means you're aiming for zero. Here they're saying 90% operational control, and they never defined operational control, over the high-traffic areas. Well, what happens when the smugglers move 10 miles down the road? So with all that language, with all the gobbledygook that's a smokescreen, what they're really saying is do whatever you want, but those borders are going to stay open. Donald Trump comes along and says, no, you won't, and we're going to put Americans first, and Americans are conned into thinking this is terrible. Abe Lincoln said that he wanted a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Donald Trump has been trying to give us, and that's what's been giving fits to the leaders in both parties. And by the way, last year, the Democrats and Republicans, Mike. during the impeachment proceedings, voted for immigration bills that were terrible and went through with a major vote. How does that happen? Mike, Mike I'll tell you what, I, for you I'll and Dan, we've got a special guest calling in. He's from with the Tunnels to Towers organization, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation that people oh, can wow. find. It. I'm a big fan. Letter to tunnel.org. I want to welcome to the show former FDNY uh, Battalion Chief John Libera. Good afternoon, John. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, we've got a lively group here. Uh, I've got my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who is a Navy veteran. I'm retired out of NYPD. Uh, Mike Cutler is retired out of INS. I knew him when he worked in Brooklyn North out of the 9-0. And Dan Perkins, also a veteran, runs a charity with his wife called Songs for Soldiers, which helps uh, soldiers with PTSD and other traumatic brain injuries 
to cope better. So we're all coming at this from the same area, and I want to welcome you uh, today, today being the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And just to let you know, John, every show I do, I dedicate to a fallen hero, um, be they law enforcement, emergency services, firefighters, veterans, or just outstanding citizens who have done something above <laughs> and beyond uh, ordinary things. Uh, so you're in your home turf here, John. Tell us about what, what happened okay. today because Mayor de Blasio, uh, my buddy Patty Lynch is probably pulling his hair out right now, uh, wouldn't allow the traditional ceremony, even though there was a way of doing it with safe spacing and so on and so forth. They did it down in Shanklin. They did it at the Pentagon. But for some reason, New York is different. And you guys went above and beyond to have to make sure that these men and women are remembered. Yes, it, it, it just wasn't the... Uh only uh it was the uh the readings the live readings and also the lights that shine for three days uh that uh so we remember the fallen towers and for whatever reason uh the administration uh did not want to have it live uh our foundation heard about it and in uh, subsequent days, we received many calls that the families were very upset and they still wanted the live readings. So Frank Silla, uh, we do have expertise in putting on live events, large events, uh, actually throughout the country and uh, especially here in uh, New York City. So we have a wonderful staff and we have thousands of volunteers that help us put on the live readings where the families read live. Uh, Vice President Pence graciously came out and said a few words at our ceremony. And uh, it concluded about a half hour ago. And uh, I'll just back up a second. So we, they said to us a week later that they were going to do the lights. So I'm not going to get into any reason why they didn't want to do it. But a week later, they came back and said they're going to do it. Uh, Frank Silla, our chairman, said, okay. So what we did, we got ahead of, uh, a set of two sets of lights. One set of lights went to Shanksville, and one set of lights went to the Pentagon. And from what I understand from our staff, Shanksville was so overwhelmed with the generosity of the foundation and we do run our foundation from, from, you know, from donations. So a lot of people donated to help us get those lights up and to help us get our ceremony. But we thought it was very, very important that the families read, that, read those names live. And uh, it went off fantastic. It was just a great, great day. And people were, were so very happy that we did it. You know, I, I scoured the uh, the TV channels looking for anything covering it, and I heard Tunnels to Towers mentioned once or twice, but no one broadcast it. So if you guys have this on, on film, you know, if you can, send me a, a copy, because I'll post it up on social networks left and right. I, 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 I could do that. We, you know, we had our, I'm sorry? <clears throat> I thought Fox did do it today. Cause I, I, yeah, Fo- Fox did it, and, uh, you know, we have our own production team uh, on staff. Uh, uh, 
you know, I'll get my email over to you. You can, you know, send me your email. And uh, on, on Monday, when things quiet down, I'll have our staff, our production staff, you know, send you over some, some of the highlights. But uh, I did hear that. Uh, it wasn't really broadcast. And uh, that's fine with us. It, it just meant uh, so much to the families and uh, to all the other uh, people that uh, wanted it read live. So we're, you know, we're very grateful for that. The, the weather held up. And, uh, again, through the generosity of so many people, uh, through uh, their donations and so many people that uh, donate their time to Steve Masilla, Tunnel to Dallas Foundation, we're very, very grateful. And we're very happy that uh, the families were, were, made, were able to uh, read those names' lives. I, I just well, can't well, make it if I can. Yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 I got to tell you, such a gentleman, Brian Siller. Well, All right, I, I just, wanted to uh, yeah, bring Dan back up on one this second. One. You guys are jumping on each other. Okay, go right, right ahead. Bring Dan on first because Dan, okay. I think okay. you and the Tunnel Two Towers Foundation can get uh, a little bit of a partnership here because since Tunnel Two Towers does work with wounded veterans and helping them get in their homes, they would know yes. those that would benefit your charity for you know the songs for soldiers. So I think the two of you should right. make a connection here. I, I, would, I would love so to be able to do that. Uh, go right, go um, right ahead. But I, go right ahead and talk. I just want to make a point. Um, if we, as a nation, went through the process this year of tearing down statues because today we didn't, we don't like what somebody did 150 years ago. If we look at those people who are tearing down the statues, the majority of them are probably not old enough to haven't been around when the towers fell or when the plane went into the ground or when the planes attacked the Pentagon. So they have no sense of history, not only 150 years ago, but 19 years ago. They don't know what it means. I sat in my parking lot outside of New York City and listen to the broadcast of those planes. I lost 30 people in my little town in those, when those towers came down. I had people that I had on Wall Street that I couldn't get a hold of because I didn't know whether they were dead or alive. Um, if you never experienced that and you've never experienced that idea of, of not knowing whether somebody was dead or alive for an extended period of time, and when you watch the destruction, and, and my wife and I, when we were illegally allowed to go in to look at the, the devastation, were just destroyed at the, at, the, at the carnage that took place there. If you never experienced that, if you didn't teach it in your history books when you were in school, then you don't understand what it means to be an American today. And I think well, that's part I, of the problem. Yep, with you hit right on the head. The streets. It's not being taught. They have no idea. Right. And, uh, and, you have kids and if you today don't, that, that, I was just going to say, you have kids today that are born that were born that are voting who were born after nine eleven. So I mean, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, so it's, 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 it's a failure of ours. If we don't go understand, ahead. don't understand our history, where we came from, we're going to have a very bad time with the future because our past helps us decide what our future should be. And if we ignore the past, destroy the past, tear down the monuments, 
take the stuff out of the education system. Uh, we're we're trying to create a generation of people who doesn't understand what America is about and where where it came from, and that's what concerns me. And 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 I think that probably part of the reason why they didn't want the names read is that the 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 um, millennials uh, on the commission and 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 the in the city government have no experience, so they don't know what it was all about. So they don't really care. It's not important to them to read the names. Uh, and that's and sad. Think Omar. And Ilan Omar, who said 9-11 was when some people did something. But i got to tell you, George Orwell summed it up. He said the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And that's exactly right. what we're experiencing. Well, I, 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 uh, not speaking for the foundation, uh, speaking as a veteran, I was in the Marines, and I served 39 years with the New York City Fire Department. John LaBarba couldn't agree more with what you just said. Well, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I just want to tell you that what Frank does and what you do, I met Frank Stiller in the green room at Fox. It was a privilege. Um, you guys are doing God's work. Maybe you should have told the idiot mayor of New York that you were having a riot instead of the reading of names, and then he would have been happy <laughs> to help you. How's uh, well, that? And you know I've got to, I've got to leave in about two minutes I've got to leave in about two minutes because I've got to go do another show, um, but I'm wondering uh, can you uh, send me some information on the gentleman from the tunnels to towers so I can reach out to him and help him understand what we do at Songs and Stories for Soldiers and see if we can work together. Of course, of course it 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 would be my pleasure and I really really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Without a well, I, I, all right. Can you get that for? Annie, can you get that for me? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know I don't let yep. you down, baby doll. I haven't all these years, okay. all but right. I'll get it at the weekend. All right. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Dan. I know that you got a bunch. Thanks. Go ahead. Thank you. Take care. All right. Nice meeting you, gentlemen. Dan Thank Perf- you. Be well, Dan. Thank you. Check out Dan Perkins' website, which is his name, Dan Perkins, um, dot guru, G-U-R-U. And uh, I, I love when I lose control of the show, John. I know this is not a typical one. Normally, have the guest one on one, but once in a while, uh, I just sit back and, and just let it fly. But with Mike Cutler, it's go. not hard to do. I've known Mike Cutler since about 1988, 89. I take advantage of him. So you know, because <laughs> like I said, Mike Cutler worked at the 90 up in uh, Brooklyn North Borough. So you know, I, I've known him for a little too long. But you know, it, it's so important that we do get the youth today to know what happened on 9-11-2001. And as Mike Cutler constantly points out, these are events that have been going on since the 1970s. We continue to ignore the threat. And instead of having something as important as this being taught to our kids, instead we have Project 1619. Come on, how insane yeah. has our world gone, John? Yeah, it's, it's, it's re- again, uh, I could... Uh, I'm just talking personally, John LaBarbera. It's it's very very sad to see what's going on around the country, especially during the pandemic, and to, to see uh, what the gentleman before me was saying, especially about they don't know the history, they don't know any sacrifices, they've never made any sacrifices, and 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 it's sad. And it said, I just hope we could turn this thing around in November. That's that's what I'm hoping for. Well, you know, well, I, I think, think it's going to be a bounce box revolution. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mikey. 
Part of the problem is we, we've got to speak to our neighbors, and, and this, the, the insults have to stop. You know, there are people who are invested in what they think is the truth, and then they don't want to admit they made mistakes. You know, when someone gets a new car and they get a great deal on the car, they call all their friends and they say, wow, did I make out on this deal? When they find out they didn't get a good deal, they call nobody because they're embarrassed. How many people get swindled out of their life savings and don't report it to the police because they're embarrassed? You have a lot of neighbors who have bought the lies that they've been sold, okay, with great expense and great effort, whether it's climate change, whether it's, I mean, it's issue by issue. And most people aren't aware of science. I was originally an engineering student. I have two kids who are engineers. I'm a science guy. The science doesn't match what we're being told. It's lie after lie. And people are invested in the lie. So we have to be gentle about it, but say to people, look, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, we're talking about their future. And by the way, it's not xenophobic to enforce immigration laws. We lock our doors at night, not because we're antisocial, but we're careful. And when you have a 9-11 commission that lays it out perfectly, John Hostetler, by the way, when he went after the way they put DHS together, I won't read the whole thing, but if you read my articles in Front Page Magazine, I think you'll find it to be an eye-opener. But Hostetler said this, and remember, he's a Republican criticizing Bush. The 9-11 terrorists all came to the United States without weapons or contraband, and customs enforcement would not have stopped 9-11 from happening. What might have foiled al-Qaeda's plan was additional immigration focus vetting and enforcement. And so what is needed is the recognition that, one, immigration is a very important national security issue that cannot take a backseat to customs or agriculture. Two, immigration is a very complex issue, and immigration enforcement agencies need experts in immigration enforcement. And three, and this is the kicker, the leadership of our immigration agencies should be shielded from political pressures to act in a way which could compromise the nation's security. And so you have two people running now. Really, they both want to be president because Camilla is looking over at Biden, and I call him the chameleon, because she stands for nothing but seizing power. And they want to occupy the Oval Office, and they talk about decriminalizing immigration law enforcement. And here's the takeaway. It's not 11 million aliens that Biden says, and the president has been repeating that number. Folks, we have to dispel that, that mistake. It's not 11 million. First of all, even universities say we're dealing with 25 million or more. But no one talks about the fact they would immediately be able to bring in every single one of their minor children. So if you have 25 million and on average they bring in four children, we're talking about an influx of 100 million children who will flood our schools and quickly become part of the labor force. We can't interview them, which is why I call comprehensive immigration reform the Terrorist Assistance and Facilitation Act. In fact, Senator Jeff Sessions, during the floor debate back in 2006 about comprehensive reform, quoted me with attributes on three separate days, sent me a very nice certificate, and said that that was how he was able to defeat the bill back then. And the other part of it is that economically it destroys us. The environment would be hammered for all the talk about the Green New Deal. And remember, I'm a Democrat. These aren't Democrats. The Green New Deal, and meanwhile, you're going to bring in 100 million people Think of the impact of because there's an ecological footprint for everybody who's here. So you're talking about food and water and electricity and sewerage and transportation and hospitals and jobs. What would happen if we were inundated with 100 million more people? The answer is America would implode. And I wrote an article about the Democrat Party of today, unlike the party of JFK. In my prior article, I quoted Kennedy how he warned about insurrection in other countries, and the tactics he warned about are the tactics being used in America today. 
But the, the whole idea is that for the Democrats to succeed, it's not just about bringing in more voters. It's about destroying the middle class. Because when you destroy the middle class, as my dad said, you turn a capitalist into a communist by taking away his money, you're going to force millions of Americans to vote for the party of the handout. And that's the Democrat Party. They're looking for one party iron-fisted control over the United States. That's where I fear they are trying to take us, uh, but for Donald Trump, who's standing up to them, and he and, and his people are going through hell. I don't always agree with Trump. I wish his language was a bit more nuanced. I was a communications major when I got my degree. I was going to teach debates on the college level. So I, I, he could benefit from some nuance in language. But the goals that he has established are exactly what we need. How could people be so foolish? They're naive. We have to sit down with our neighbors and talk it through in a peaceful, calm conversation because, you know what, facts are stubborn things. I didn't mean to go on, but I, I just hope I'm making sense to both of you. Thank you. Well, John, what's important about an organization like yours, it, there's no political lines here. It is just to help no, those men no, and women no. yes. that have given everything. They have given the ultimate and their families you know, to the helping hand. But that's what a true American is, to be willing to step over that line and just help their fellow American, no matter what the situation is. We as a foundation think it's very important that we support our military our first responders, and we have a number of programs how we do that. We build homes, special smart homes for catastrophically injured service members, uh, uh, veterans who lost four limbs, quadruple amputees. We build them smart homes. There's six or seven of them. There's triple amputees. There's, There's kids that were horribly burned. And we're probably over 70 homes built over the last 10 years, and we just pivoted over to Gold Star families, paying off mortgages of families who lost their loved ones, protecting our freedom overseas in the military. And we'll also have a program for first responders that are killed in the line of duty, police officers and firefighters. And we need everyone's help, whether it's a dollar, Eleven dollar a month program like we have, you could go to tunneltotowers.org or just volunteer and do something and raise some money and help us take care of these vets and their families that have made such a sacrifice so to keep our freedom free. Because we know, you know, it, it is not it costs freedom cost, and it's something that is very important to the Silla family very important to our firefighters, our police officers, and the, and the, and the military. Uh, on this 19th year of 9-11, with so many of our brothers and first responders and civilians made sacrifices, it's uh, something that we think is very important. And one other thing, don't forget that sacrifices are still being made over 200 firefighters to date have died from 9-11 cancer. Over 200 police officers and, and countless Port Authority people who helped in the rescue and recovery have passed 
from 9-11 cancer, so the sacrifices are still being made. Every month I see on the Officer Down Memorial page and other first responder pages um, lists of those that are still dying from the effects of 9-11. Yep. And it really breaks my heart. And they're from Texas. They're from Detroit. They're from all over the nation. Everywhere. And they're not just yep. – they're, they're forest <clears throat> workers. There are peace officers. There are firefighters. There are EMS. Uh, all across the spectrum. Construction workers. Day, That's right. We are still feeling the effect of that loss. And these men and women that are, are enduring this have for the last 19 years, and we don't know how far into the future. And, Mike, you remember where we had the fight for the 9-11 fund, and recently we had it yes. renewed. But yes. this is something, Mike, you write about on Front Page Magazine, why we have to keep this story in front and why we need to help Gold Star families, Tunnels to Towers, and, and keep the 9-11 fund going until the last person finally is laid to rest. If I could you know, say so one thing day. before I, before it passes my mind, uh, I was supposed to be in North Carolina. We were giving away a, uh, a home to a gold star family, Sergeant West, who was killed around eight years ago. I was taken off of that and, and, and uh, I had to stay in Manhattan uh, to help with our event today. But uh, I was making a speech out there and I was going to talk about four heroes of the day out of the many, many heroes, firefighters, police officers, and civilians. One police officer, one female police officer, Maura Smith, is the only female first responder that was killed on 9-11. So I, people need to know that. It's men, it's women, it's men and women in the military, all making the sacrifices. Mora came on in 88, and she always wanted to be a police officer. In 91, she got assigned uh, to uh, the Transit Authority Police Department, and she was a hero at a train derailment, the worst in the transit history. And after a nine-hour tour, that, that's when the train derailment took place in Mora, helped save lives for another 24 hours. Well, she was awarded Distinguished Service Medal from the New York City Police Department. And on 9 11, she was patrolling the 13th precinct, and she assisted in so many people getting out of that South Tower to get them to triage. And Morrow made one last trip into the South Tower where she was killed. So it's important that people know men and women made that supreme sacrifice on 9-11-2001. But, John, look at this nonsense about defunding the police, that the cops are the – I mean, the lunacy that we're witnessing – and, and, you know, we're talking about a handful of instances. And, and look, one lost life is, is, is a tragedy and, and not acceptable. But goodness gracious, um, we have medical malpractice. I wrote a piece about this. You know, in an average year, according to Johns Hopkins, and they're, they're very authoritative. It's not some supermarket tabloid. They have right. at least a quarter of a million people die of medical malpractice. Has anyone ever suggested that we defund the hospitals? Think about that. <laughs> 
Yeah, am I wrong? Uh, again, so, speaking so as a civilian. The people that put their lives on the line are the villains. Yeah, really? It's 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 it's, it's really really it, it's really it's unbelievable. We're back in the seventies over here. You know, it's just uh, the loons are running the asylum. Very sad. It's 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 yes, the inmates are running the asylum, and it's 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 sad. I hope we could turn this thing around in November, and we do need law and order. People feel so much safer, and people aren't coming to the city. You know, people people aren't getting out. People are afraid to to do the things. New York Times uh, not reporting just on it today. Manhattan, the but all the The New York Times just reported about how De Blasio is ignoring the companies that are asking him to make the city safe so people come back here. Well, that, that, that that's right, and that's going to be very very hurtful. In the future, it's just uh, really it's, it's mind-boggling. By the way, John, if there's any way it could be helpful, please let me know. Um, you, you guys Thank are you doing God's much. work. My wife and I subscribe <clears throat> to to Thomas and Tally. Thank you. You know the Thank sacrifice of, of, of Stephen and, and the work that you and Frank and all those wonderful people do. It's awe-inspiring. So I really much. have to tell you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike and John. Yes. Hey, this is the co-host, C.S. Bennett. Yes. Somebody mentioned. Up. About the destruction okay. <laughs> of the middle class. Now, I look at this pan- pandemic, or supposed, you know, supposedly pandemic, and I see how small businesses are being destroyed left and yep. right because they're not able to open, or if they open, they can only do 25% of the business that they're used to, or 50% if they're, you know, lucky. I see this as a possible way that the left will get to the point they want to be where they destroy the middle class because I mean when you look around a lot of businesses small businesses are failing what are your thoughts on that yes. and, and by the way and who's and who is making and who's making up the difference yeah uh, unfortunately uh, uh, my perspective I could really uh, I have to just really talk about the foundation uh, if we could take another call on another day, but, but, you know, heading, getting back to what you said before, the Silla foundation, we're neutral. John LaBarba does have his own opinions, but uh, today on nine 11, uh, I just have to concentrate on making sure people never forget. And uh, I, I, you guys are wonderful. You, you, you got some wonderful points, but uh, you know, on nine 11, it's, uh, you know, oh, yeah, no, no, I don't want to those be political. Who, don't misunderstand, John. And I understand you have to be neutral as you should be. Yes. Well, yes. yeah. And, and I, the, today I, is a special, uh, the whole show is a dedication to uh, 9/11, yeah. which we now call Patriots Day. Uh, I'm, I sometimes I wonder if they call it Patriots Day just so that we forget what 9/11 is really about and the sacrifices our men and women do as first responders. But John, you have a fantastic organization. I'll hook you up with Dan Perkins, and maybe we can get Mike yes, Cutler that, to please. get the pen and paper and write an article to help support the organization. And maybe we could, starting today, start some sort of a drive. We've got one year before the 20th anniversary and see how many more homes we can build between be, in this one year by getting donations out there. Thank you so there. much. Thank you so much. It's a challenge. Uh, do you have my cell phone? Yes. Okay. Um, I have the next, Early next week. Or, okay. Yes, this is it. Reach out to me. We shall talk. I shall give you more information, and that is very, very kind to you. God bless all of you, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Please tell Brett. Right. Oh, is our Brett, we met briefly. I don't know if he remembers me, but tell him it was really a privilege to meet him. <laughs> it is a privilege. Okay. Thank you very much, John. You have a blessed God day. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. Thank you. Yeah. All right. All right. Check uh, we'll have a link up on the show page a little bit later. Uh, that will only allow me so many characters per episode, so I'll have to figure out what to juggle around. You know, yeah. Mike maybe, is so much maybe Mike can answer my question. I, I will. <clears throat> because it's a very important question. It goes back to the article that I had written about for the Democrats to succeed, Americans must fail. If you destroy the middle class, you force people to the left. Okay? Now, let me go a bit further than just the small businesses. I was watching a hearing back in 2009 before the Senate Immigration Subcommittee, which was chaired at the time by Chuck Schumer. Okay, Alan Greenspan came on, and he talked about how we need to bring in the undocumented, their flexible workforce, yada, 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 and all this other nonsense. They only minimally suppress the wages of a working When you suppress the wage of someone who's working poor, you wind up with homelessness, Okay. But then he addressed the high-tech workers, and I went berserk. My head started to spin like a top. He referred to American workers. Let me, let me just read these two paragraphs, why we need to do a green spend with uh, what um, Bill Gates wanted, basically an unlimited number of foreign high-tech workers. It blew my mind, because what you're talking about is destroying opportunities for Americans, firing American high-tech workers. These are well-paid people. These are solid middle-class jobs, and that's why when you say middle-class, I immediately thought of Greenspan. He had me so angry. I was on a radio show the following day. I was a regular on this woman's program. I did an hour every Thursday. And I said, you know, when I watched Greenspan, because I watched the hearing live streaming on my computer, I knew I was witnessing the first. And she said, Mike, I know you have a sick sense of humor. I'm stepping on thin ice. <laughs> but what kind of a first was it? I said it was the first time I'd ever seen someone testify who was suffering from rigor mortis. I detest Alan Greenspan. It was a how dare you moment. Here's the benefits that he said to flooding America with foreign high-tech workers. You're going to love this. First, skilled workers and their families form new households. They will of necessity move into vacant housing units, the current glut of which is the pricing prices of American homes. Can't you just see the Norman Rockwell painting of an American home lost to foreclosure? Vacant housing unit, right. And, of course, he said, House price declines are a major factor in mortgage foreclosures and the plunge in value of the vast quantity of U.S. mortgage-backed securities that has contributed substantially to the disabling of our banking system. Baloney. It was his subprime mortgages that he was pushing that did that. But then he gets to the so-called second bonus, and this is what made my head explode. The second bonus, that is to bringing in basically unlimited numbers of foreign high-tech workers, would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. In other words, someone's getting too rich, and I guarantee he's not talking about himself, even though he lives in an estate in the Hamptons, okay? Greatly expanding, this is Greenspan, greatly expanding our quotas for the highly skilled would lower wage premiums of the skilled over the lesser skilled. Skill shortages in America exist because we are shielding our skilled labor force from world competition. Quotas have been substituted for the wage pricing mechanism, and in the process, we have created, and you're going to love this term, a privileged elite. Where have you ever heard of middle-class workers called the privileged elite whose incomes are being supported at non-competitively high levels 
by immigration quotas on skilled professionals. Eliminating such restrictions would reduce at least some of our income inequality. So in other words, the elevator isn't going up. The elevator is going to go down. And we're going to destroy the middle class so the working poor will not have to be envious of anybody. Now, well, Mike, immigration let's be the bailiwick of labor. Well, let's take a step back here because they were pushing for these H-1B-1 visas or these worker visas. They named it a whole spaghetti soup of them. Uh, But here we had, it's supposed to be Americans take those tech jobs first. And only if it cannot be filled, then you take in a visa worker. But lo and behold, GE, GE and Walt Disney World turned around and told their American high tech workers that you are going to train your visa replacement. And if you don't, you don't get a recommendation, you don't get severance pay. So, you well, know, they don't get they, recommendations they anyway. It wasn't just those companies. It was across the board. It was across the board. Now, I, I want you to contrast that with what Kennedy had to say. Uh, my prior article for Front Page Magazine, I don't know if you saw it, Annie, but what I, what I entitled it, and this was published August 26th, frontpagemag.com. I hope after this program everyone will go to Front Page. By the way, I do my own Internet radio program this evening at 7 o'clock, the Michael Cutler Hour all on Blog Talk Radio. But the title for my article was that radical, radical Democrats have become the adversaries of freedom. JFK's address to Congress in 1961 warned about the subversion that we now experience. Kennedy went before a joint session of Congress and said that normally we do the State of the Union at a particular time and under extraordinary circumstances. Uh, I feel compelled to come to you now. And it was interesting because he referred to, uh, let me just bring this up. He he referred to um, the um, Congress as his co-partners. His co-partners in government. Can you imagine that? What what a difficult what a different way uh, to to address the Congress, my co-partners. But but so here is what he had said though, because I, I want to read this to you. Because when you look at the rioting that's going on, and then he gets into how we have to take care of American workers. People say, why are you a Democrat? Because I'm a JFK, Harry Truman Democrat. Not to be confused with this bunch of mobsters who have hijacked the Democrat Party. He said uh, this. These are extraordinary times, and we face extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have imposed upon this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. What an eloquent way to put this. No role in history could be more difficult or more important. We stand for freedom. That is our conviction for ourselves. It's our only commitment to others. No friend, no neutral, no adversary should think otherwise. We are not against any man or any nation or any system, except as it is hostile to freedom nor am I here to present a new military doctrine bearing any one name or aimed at any one area. I am here to promote the freedom doctrine. The great battleground for the defense and expansion of freedom today is the whole southern half of the globe, Asia, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East, the lands of the rising people. Their revolution is the greatest in human history. They seek an end to injustice, tyranny, and exploitation. More than an end, they seek a beginning. And theirs is a revolution which we would support regardless of the Cold War and regardless of political or economic route that they should choose to freedom. So the adversaries of freedom did not create the revolution, nor did they create the conditions which compel it. They are seeking to ride the crest of its wave to capture it for themselves. 
yet their aggression is more often concealed than open. They have fired no missiles. Their troops are seldom seen. They send arms, agitators, aid, technicians, and propaganda to every troubled area. But where fighting is required, it is usually done by others, by guerrillas striking at night, by assassins striking alone, assassins who have taken the lives of 4,000 civil officers in the last 12 months in Vietnam alone, by subversion and saboteurs and insurrectionists who, in some case, control whole areas inside of independent nations. Think of the chopped bone, folks, okay? Control whole areas. And then he said this. They possess a powerful intercontinental striking force, large forces of the conventional war, well-trained underground in nearly every country, the power to conscript talent and manpower for any purpose, the capacity for quick decisions, a closed society without dissent or free information. Think about where we are with Antifa shutting down debate on campuses and fake news, right? A closed society without dissent or free information and long experience in the techniques of violence and subversion. They make the most of their scientific successes, their economic progress, and their pose as a foe of colonialism. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I call her Alexandria the barmaid, actually used that term, I'm an enemy of the colonialists, okay? And here we talk about colonialism and a friend of popular revolution. They prey on unstable or unpopular governments. Are they not trying to destabilize the American government right after the election? What were they chanting? Not my president delegitimizing the president to create instability, right? So they prey on unstable or unpopular governments, unsealed or unknown boundaries, meaning open borders and no immigration enforcement, unfilled hopes, convulsive change, massive poverty, illiteracy, unrest, and frustration. We've imported massive illiteracy by having open borders, which have allowed millions upon millions, probably tens of millions of people to come to America who don't speak a common language and who are not literate okay this is about destabilizing the government of the united states with these formidable weapons the adversaries of freedom plan to consolidate their territory to exploit to control and finally to destroy the hopes of the world's newest nations substitute for the term newest nations the united states of america and they have ambition to do it before the end of this decade it is a contest of will and purpose as well as force and violence a battle for the minds and souls and Biden said that he was in a battle for the minds and souls of America, okay, as well as the lives and territory. And in that contest, we cannot stand aside. We stand as we have always stood from our earliest beginnings for the independence of equality of all nations. This nation was born of revolution and raised in freedom. And we do not intend to leave an open road for despotism. There is no simple single policy which meets this challenge Experience has taught us that no one nation has the power or the wisdom to solve all the problems of the world or manage its revolutionary times, that extending our commitments does not always increase our security and that any initiative carries with it the risk of temporary defeat, temporary, I emphasize, that nuclear weapons cannot prevent subversion, that no free people, here's the lesson for us today, folks, 59 years after that speech, that no free people can be kept free without will and energy of their own and that no two nations or situations are exactly alike. Yet there is much that we can and we must do. The proposals I bring to you are numerous and varied. They arise from the host of special opportunities and dangers which have become increasingly clear in recent months. Taken together, I believe that they can mark another step forward in our efforts as a people, and I'm asking 
help of this Congress and the nation approving the necessary measures. Now, he talks about America at home, and I just want to read this to you. The first and basic task confronting this nation this year was to turn recession into recovery. That's where we are right now with COVID, isn't it? An affirmative anti-recession program initiated with your cooperation supported the national, natural forces of the private sector, and our economy is now enjoying renewed confidence in energy. The recession has been halted. Recovery is underway. But the task of abating unemployment and achieving the full use of our resources does remain a serious challenge for us all. Large-scale unemployment during recession is bad enough, but large-scale unemployment during the period of prosperity would be intolerable. And now here's the critical sentence. Think about the H-1B visas of today and what Kennedy said back then. Um, I am therefore transmitting to the Congress a new management development and training program to train or retrain several hundred thousand workers. And here we're talking about Americans, ladies and gentlemen, particularly in those areas where we've seen chronic unemployment as a result of technological factors in new occupational skills over a four-year period in order to replace those skills made obsolete by automation and industrial change with the new skills which the new processes demand. We're going to educate Americans so they can take the jobs. And when Sputnik was launched by Russia, Eisenhower didn't say get India on the line so they could send us their engineers. He said we're going to teach American kids science and math so that America continued to lead. How in the world have we gone from a self-reliant nation with more than double the population we had during the administration of JFK, and we're told that the only way for America to succeed is to import an army of foreign workers. Where am I getting that wrong, folks? You know, I, I've made a, a question. I think I've asked you this over the years. How much of the importation of radical Islam, of communism, and Marxism has brought our society to this point? When you look at the riots that oh. we have going on... From the, the, the get-go, you knew that there was an infiltration within our system. And did not Marx and Lenin say we were going to destroy them from within? They have been working on of us, course. not for decades, but for more than 100 years. And we've been You're just sitting back right. and letting it change. And, and look at what is now happening with Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education. This is the first time, to my knowledge, this is being done. Again, why do you think both sides of the aisle are freaking out? Because Betsy DeVos, when they saw how the chairman of the chemical biology department at Harvard University had allegedly received a ton of money that he concealed from the federal government by the Chinese government, he was working in the laboratories at Hunan down the road from where the COVID virus is believed to have formed. Okay? Didn't report it. So he's being prosecuted for that. He just added additional charges of income tax evasion that he failed to, to report on that income. So she opened up an investigation, and they've identified so far at least $6 billion with a B. I mean, it sounds like Carl Sagan, billions of stars, well, billions of dollars, over $6 billion pumped into universities that they have not reported. Where is the money coming from? Saudi Arabia, Qatar, we believe China number one. Russia, maybe Iran. 
Well, why are they pumping? And this is the money they didn't report. They reported other billions, and we believe there's more money they don't know about yet. Why do they do it? They control the faculty. They control the curriculum. China bought up a Spanish radio station just on the other side of the U.S.-Mexican border in Mexico. It's no longer Spanish. It's now Chinese. And it bombards the southern half of the United States, the southwest, a very powerful station, with Chinese propaganda to keep their citizens in line. And they have something called the Thousand Grains of Sand program, in addition to the Thousand Talents program. Thousand Grains of Sand, they instruct their students who come to the United States that they must bring home a piece of technology. So they don't say to some students, oh, get us the, the blueprint for the F-22 or the F-35 fighter plane. They'll say, get us the landing gear, get us the control surfaces, get us the avionics. So everyone brings back a grain of sand, and then they reassemble it in, in, the, in, in China. They get jobs working in, for military contractors. Trump comes along and says, wait a minute, why are we teaching Chinese engineers how to build airplanes? They're building up their air force, and they're threatening us with our own technology. They built the artificial island in the South China Sea. And so how have they built it up? using the lessons they've learned in our universities. Now, what's remarkable, and I think I mentioned it before, on um, um, February 24th, 1998, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on foreign terrorists operating in the United States, and one of the participants was Diane Feinstein. And back then, maybe we should end the visa waiver program. It was a pilot program then. Well, I've been screaming about that forever. And then she said, we shouldn't be giving visas, perhaps, to aliens that come from countries that sponsor terrorism. It's exactly what Trump said. You know, they keep saying, oh, Trump isn't giving visas to people who come from Muslim-majority countries. That's baloney. These aren't Muslim-majority countries. That's not the focus. Yeah, they are. But if his goal was to keep Muslims out, he's a failure because he left out from that list the three most populous Muslim-majority countries, Indonesia, India, and Pakistan. It's about countries that sponsor terrorism, and we're unable to screen the people who come here from there. But that's not how the media portrays it. I wish Trump would go on television and straighten that lie out. So look at what we've done. We've educated our enemies. We've enabled them to have access to our students. COVID makes kids more reliant on computers, and you know where Bill Gates' head is at. And there are some schools telling the kids, not to share what they're learning on computer with their parents. Who ever heard of parents being kept out of the loop whether the education of their own children is concerned? Oh, that's been going on for all of these factors. What am I getting wrong here, Annie? There's absolutely nothing that you're getting wrong. These are all things that we have been screaming about for a long time. Now you want your head to explode even further? I have a favor. I have a favor. That your head is. Over. In today's paper, and I caught this, United Auto Workers Union, the UAW, has now gotten 1,700, catch this, research scientists to join the union for better wages and working conditions. Now, these are individuals that go in an entry-level position, work their way up, and eventually become heads of labs. So what the heck do they what do they have to do with the United Auto Workers Union? They are so desperate for membership they're going anywhere and everywhere just to prop them up and keep them going. Well, and what we saw when I was an agent, you know, we used to they used to have those jingles on TV, look for the union label. I won't sing. You know, I used to make money with my singing. People paid me not to, so I won't do it to you. 
I know how you sing. Uh, I, I hate you too. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I was told that the best song I ever sang was "Far Away." The further, the better. So, but 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 the point of the matter is that the illegal aliens were represented by the uh, ILG, you know, that, that clothing union. Now. They would actually have bail bondsmen come to our office if we raided a factory to bail out the illegal alien women that were working in the sweatshops. Sometimes their bail bondsmen would beat us to the office. Think about that. So yep. they don't care and about American union workers. Work. Right. They just want, so the, and it's the same thing with the politicians. They want more members because it means more dues, which is obviously more money. And the more people they have, the more political leverage they have. Money and power, the, the electors of what this is all about. So some unions would go nuts. Like a lot of the construction trade unions, and I think they're still pretty good on it, don't want illegal aliens because they understand that it's destroying jobs. But you have other unions that couldn't care less. A warm body is a warm body. And that was why when Trump said, we ought to take a census and differentiate who's American, who's American citizen and who isn't. We're crazy, but that started with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter ordered immigration agents to make no arrests during the census. Why? Because he wanted illegal aliens to be counted. Why? Because that's how you gerrymander congressional districts and electoral votes in the electoral college that determines the outcome of the presidential election. So we had one guy in my office get into trouble because he arrested an illegal alien without getting permission from Washington, even though the guy had a rap sheet a mile long. You made an arrest without saying, may I? Did anybody else have that restriction? No. The DEA get the orders, don't make arrests during the census? No. Did ATF get told, don't lock up people with guns during the census? Uh Uh-uh. But immigration agents were told, you will not or else. So you had to get special permission. Well, the guy is wanted for murder, yada, yada, yada. Okay, but you're only arresting him, and don't make a big deal about it. Go quietly. Why? And Obama did the same thing. Why? To gerrymander electoral votes. So they're being represented in Congress, even though they shouldn't be here. Now, understand the history of immigration law enforcement. It was actually FDR who wanted immigration enforcement to get America out of the Depression. It was FDR who said, we're going to do a 40-hour work week with no overtime. He said, look, if you have enough work that you need to have people work overtime, don't give them overtime, hire another worker. Why? I want as many people off the unemployment line as possible. Makes sense. The Labor Department ran immigration. It changed during the Second World War when we saw saboteurs coming here from, from Germany, and there were concerns about Japanese saboteurs, and they said, wait a minute, this isn't just about labor. This is now national security. So they moved immigration from the Labor Department to the Justice Department. Then they move immigration from the Justice Department to Homeland Security. But then look at what we did. If I read the rest of the host Hitler's statement, he talked about how they, they cut immigration in half, which they never should have, Customs and Border Protection versus ICE. That should not have happened. That makes it totally unwieldy. So they can't share information with other agencies without them having to go to two separate places. This is something called the third agency rule. They also blended immigration with customs and agriculture and the sky marshals and, and, and the GSA police. Why? That doesn't help enforcement. And then it turned out that most of the people put in charge had zero immigration experience. Why was that? 
because they had no inclination and no desire to enforce the immigration laws. And that was what Hostella said, what the Bush administration did, what this administration did. He didn't say Bush administration. It was immigration incoherent and prevents the securing of our borders and protecting the American people. So both sides of the aisle are in on it. That was why Jeb Bush, if you remember during the debate, said, oh, illegal immigration is an act of love, and I wrote a commentary where I said that Jeb was looking for love in all the wrong places, an act of mm-hmm. love. They're globalists. George Bush Sr. talked about the new world order. Okay? So please understand what we're witnessing. Immigration is a delivery system, as I pointed out earlier. And everyone is literally making out like a bandit, except the average American who's losing his or her job or facing wage suppression. Look at the, the ability we have to support ourselves. When I was a kid, it was typical for the average family to have two cars in the driveway, and they were paid for. Who in the world could buy a car today if you're going to buy a new car? Most people lease. Why are they leasing? Because they don't have the money to shell out for a car. Everything that we're done is downsizing. And the real game plan, if the Democrats win, and there have been articles about this, suburbia has got to go. And this is in line with what I just said about how many hundreds of, of, of the fact of 100 million kids coming to America. They want to change the zoning laws of the suburbs. And there was one guy who wrote this article that he came to America from, I forgot where, Pakistan or wherever. And he grew up in the suburbs. It was so beautiful. But that's antiquated. And it's unfair, this use of land. We've got to get rid of single-family homes and big lawns. They need to be dug up and flattened, and large apartment houses need to be built because there's no place for the people to stay. In New York City, just before COVID, de Blasio says we need to change the zoning laws so that people can live in basements and in garages and in little houses and backyards. What, dog houses? Well, didn't AOC also say she wanted to put the illegal aliens into public housing? And we all know how well public housing works in New York City. And, and, and something else we now, forgot about. De Blasio, and I, you have two ways of spelling it. It's D-U-H or Dumb Blasio. You, you can take your pick. They have a variation. He has an A-K-A. Dumb Blasio, A-K-A, Dumb Blasio, said that we got to get rid of those glass and steel office towers. Maybe that's why he wanted to see the fires. He said they're energy inefficient. So all this talk about the Green New Deal, but again, what's the environmental footprint of 100 million people? So if they get their way, we're going to legalize the world. Anybody who's here, no matter how they get here, will get free health care, which would turn America into the ER for the world. So if you need emergency treatment at a hospital, now maybe you've got to wait behind 20 people. We do that, it'll be 200 people if you're lucky. And so you're going to be attracting people with dangerous communicable diseases. The hospitals don't have the staffing or the meds or the facilities. This is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And it's being done, well, I believe, by design. And, and here's the other point. Joe Biden All right, because I want to make your head explode again. Good. Go ahead, because then after that, I'm going to make your head explode even further. Go ahead. Oh, boy. Well, Joe Biden, if he's doing the deals that we keep hearing about, the billion-dollar-plus deal with China and all this, 
You and I both know that the mob respects cops until cops become dirty, and then they use them like a hooker, okay, because they now own the cop. The honest cop, they have respect for them because they know that guy's playing by the rules. They expect that. They, get, they, they can deal with that. Once they buy a cop, they own the cop. The same thing with crooked politicians. Once you take money that you shouldn't be taking or a favor, or they get you on film doing the horizontal mambo with a 12-year-old, or God only knows, and with this business with Epstein, nothing is off the table anymore. If you had any doubts, I mean, look at the, the, the perversity and the madness that we're witnessing from our so-called leaders, okay? Once they've got you with your hand in the cookie jar or wherever else it shows up, <clears throat> they own you and they blackmail you into submission. One of the first things we were warned about when I got my security clearance, be careful who you're messing with because you can get blackmailed and you have a security clearance, you could be coerced into doing things that could endanger public safety or national security. Call campaign contributions what they are. They are bribes, plain and simple. And when politicians tell you, I don't take PAC money, political action money, that might be true, but the party does, and the party becomes the money launderer for the campaigns on both sides of the aisle. We now have the best government money can buy, and that's why they make the decisions that they make. They know that they're operating against the best interests of their own constituents, but they don't care. Because all they then do is the, the magic act to convince the constituents they're doing what they want while making certain that they don't offend the people who offer them the campaign contributions, which are bribes. Think of it this way. I think that the lobbyists, for the most part, are disgusting, but the, but the politicians become the employees of the lobbyists. The employee uh, writes the check. The employee cashes the check. Who's writing the check? The lobbyists. Who's cashing the check? The politicians. That's why we're in this mess that we're in today. Well, now, here, here, here's, to ahead, here's, here's to make your head explode. Because right now, our family growth, um, we are not producing enough American children to support the right. older generation. You know, we need two and a half individuals for one retiree. So now right. they have decided, well, we can't quite get the American people to stop having babies so why don't we find a way to prevent them from being able to create babies? So now they go into the school systems. They now have the transgender phase where we have an yep. unusual, historically unusual number of women, girls. And some of them, most of them prepubescent, deciding that I am a transgender. Without the knowledge of or the permission of the parents, they begin to take the hormones. And the school staff directs them to psychiatrists and doctors that to begin to transition these kids who haven't even gone through puberty. Taking these pills, they have no idea what will do to them. So we're producing a whole generation of barren women. So where are we going to get the future generation wow. of Americans? We're not going to have two and a half babies per family to support the retirees. So we're going to have to increase immigration, H-1B-1 visas, and open the borders, oh, by the way, because we're running out of population. That's a long-term plan here, Mike. That's a very devious well, long-term plan. Sure, but, but, but a lot of it has been long-term planning. You know, we, Americans have the attention span of goldfish. We do. And, and if you talk to people about the bombing in 93, I had a neighbor say to me, wasn't that the Empire State Building? I said, no, that was King Kong. Okay. Wasn't that the Empire State Building? 
So we don't pay attention to anything if it takes more than a millisecond. Now, you add to that what Orwell had said about newspeak, which is really what Twitter is. You eliminate words. You eliminate the thoughts that the words represent. We, mm-hmm. We've controlled the media. We, we've created a situation where people, after three or four minutes, because that seems to be the, the amount of time of the average news story on cable news, so after three minutes, everyone starts shifting in their seat waiting for a commercial to come on. Uh, a, a friend of mine who a um, brilliant professor, he, he's, he's retired, he's served in the Israeli military, and uh, he lives on the West Coast now, really bright guy, said, you know, think about this. When Johnny Carson was running The Tonight Show, there was no videotaping, so he, it was like 20 minutes between commercials, 15 minutes. And you knew when there was a commercial because the water pressure around the country dropped as everybody ran to, the, to take a bathroom break. <laughs> now where are we? It's every three minutes there's a commercial. So no one wants to sit still. People will say to me, oh, my God, you wrote an article. It's 1,500 words. Was it War and Peace, 1,500 words? People read the headline and they think they know what the news is. So the headlines are ridiculous. The story doesn't even follow what the headline is half the time, but it doesn't matter. The damage is done. I remember walking by a newsstand about 10 years ago, and the headline on either time or Newsweek, doesn't much matter, showed the calloused hands of a farm worker. And, and if you've ever seen farm workers, um, you know, their hands are as puffy as, as catcher's mitts. They're all calloused. And they're all chewed up. And it showed these, a pair of hands, and the headline read, the case, for immigration reform. Now, this is a debate. There's two sides to this, the case for immigration. So an editorial became the headline on the front page of a major magazine. Now, when you read the article, they did say there were two sides to the argument, but it didn't say the debate over comprehensive reform. The headline was the case for immigration reform. So anybody walking by would think, well, I guess we have to do this. That is how we're being manipulated at every turn of the screw. Don't use the word immigrant or you're a hater. Well, wait a minute. What, don't use the word alien, rather. Well, if the word alien is so terrible, why is it part of the acronym DREAM Act, Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors? Well, it's acceptable there because you're pushing the narrative. And why did it, so I'm helping this woman who's running for Congress. I won't tell you who she's opposing, but it's a significant player in the Democrat Party. And I said, immigration is the key issue. She said, oh, I don't want to get involved with that. It's too emotional. I said, it is emotional. The emotions are on our side. She said, how? And I sat her down and explained it to her, and her chin hit the table. She said, I never thought of it. I said, of course it's emotional. When you have gang members killing people, mostly, by the way, within the Latino ethnic community. And it's not only MS-13. You have Asian organized crime, the Asian gangs. You have the Jamaican drug posses. Look, you, you dealt with all the flotsam and jetsam that I did. This isn't about brown mm-hmm. skin. They make you believe it is. And then, oh, my God, the blacks are being killed by the cops. And here's a question that I have. You're a former cop, so, so let's look at this. More whites than blacks get killed by police. Now, it's understandable that people are saying, well, wait a minute, there are far fewer blacks than whites in America, so per capita, more blacks are killed, and that's right. But nevertheless, raw numbers, and it's about 100 or something a year whites that are killed and 100 or something a year blacks who are killed. All right? We're not talking huge numbers, but again, every single loss of life is a tragedy. So that as soon as there's a black who was killed or shot by a cop, bango, front page, 
and the, the camera footage is released. Tell me, Annie, when was the last time you saw the footage of a white guy getting shot by the police? The 12th of November? Never. No. Never. Never. Now, here's my question. What about black cops that are killed by black ga- gang members? You had a right. retired captain. Uh, yep. um, I'm just, his name, I, I just had his name. Like, yes, like, but, but here's, my, here's my question. As it's, I it, they stepped is, over his body as he lay dying. Right. Right. Both of you some televisions. I saw that, and, and Trump honored his memory. But here's my point. Is that the only metric, unless you're a racist? No. So here's a couple of questions. Of the people who were shot, how many were at the time, acting erratically because they were under the influence of either alcohol or a drug. Is that a reasonable question? Or committing Are a crime? Are we hearing anything about that? No. How many of them had prior criminal histories? Are we hearing anything about that? No. How many of them were raised in a single family household with no father or no male influence? Is that a reasonable question? I think so. Uh, how many of them graduated high school? How many graduated college? How many dropped out of high school? That's a reasonable question. And now you add to this toxic stew this fake nonsense about how the cops are looking to kill black people. So now the black that gets pulled over literally feels like the deer in the headlights, and he reacts because he's scared to death. He sees red lights in his rearview mirror, and he acts erratically, and things spiral out of control. Right? But, and I plan to write an article about this. But these are certainly contributing factors, aren't they? But no one wants to talk about it. And Fox News is at it again, black voters, Latino voters, white voters, American voters, folks. We all want the same things. We want the police to keep the streets safe, the schools to educate our kids, the military to keep our enemies as far away as possible. Now, we may disagree on other issues. Um, on most issues, uh, a centrist, you might accuse me properly of being an old-time liberal. You and I disagree about certain things, Annie. And as Americans, we're entitled. That's what the First Amendment is about. I still consider you a very good friend. I'm sure you feel the same about me. And if we disagree, that's what the First Amendment is about. They've turned America into a food fight. When I first started doing television, people said to me, Mike, if you want to get back on TV, turn it into a food fight. I said, I don't do food fights. I'm not an animal house. Oh, but they're not going to have you back. They want a food fight. So this is all about the psychology of the message we give the American people. You can't have a calm conversation. We have to be throwing crap at each other. Otherwise, it's boring. Survival is boring. The future of our children, the future of our nation, the future of our grandchildren is boring. So they create a fake narrative. And you don't really know what the truth is. And, you know, they always have the question or the statement that when tree falls the forest, there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? The better question is, if the tree falls in the forest and no one's willing to report on it, do you know that the tree fell? So by manipulating <laughs> the news, right? So by manipulating the news, all that we hear about is the black guy that got shot. By the way, you look at George Floyd's background, this wasn't exactly um, – the pillar of the community. I'm sorry he's dead. Uh, there's going to be a trial. I hope it's a fair trial because there's a lot of factors. He had a lot of drugs from what I've read in his system. Did that have an outcome and cause his death? Uh, did that cause him to act erratically? I don't know. But we shouldn't be judging cases in the media. That's what trials are for. And that's why you wind up with a change in venue 
when something is so thoroughly reported in the media and lots of misinformation gets thrown into the mix, you can't have a fair trial. And the, the, the uh, judiciary process is supposed to be slow and methodical. Yes, justice delayed is justice denied, but you don't have an incident on Monday and, and the hanging of a cop on Thursday. No, that's not justice. Mm. You're supposed to gather all the facts, and you have these idiot mayors jumping out there and immediately saying, oh, my God, what that cop did. Do you have all the facts? Of course not. Of course not. So, Mike. When and if we have a bad cop, absolutely he should face prosecution, and we are made yeah. accountable. But you've got to be fair in the way that we look at the issues. You have cops who shouldn't be cops. <clears throat> By the way, I've got to give you good news, because I said this. You have some police officers who are traumatized by what they experience. They're suffering post-traumatic stress. Maybe we ought to give cops an early out with a pension, reduced pension, but it's like being in the military. You do five years, and now you can leave, and you can be thanked for serving your community. We give you the equivalent of an honorable discharge, and you become a cabinet maker or a school teacher or a librarian, or you open a butcher shop, whatever. And you've served your community, and you move on. So Trump is now putting money into psychological services for law enforcement. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. The other thing they ought to be doing, and I told this to Congress, is you should be subpoenaing from every law enforcement agency, at least on the federal side, the critical elements of the job description and job evaluations, performance evaluations. Why? Because if you have a department that tells a cop, we're going to measure your effectiveness, for example, by how many arrests you make, then you're telling that cop that he needs to escalate situations to the point where he can put handcuffs on somebody if he wants to get ahead in his career. Do we really want to do that? So how do we evaluate law enforcement? How do we instruct them to conduct themselves? Uh, you know, am I right or wrong on that one, Annie? You sound very good. Curtis had a question for you, though. Go ahead, Curtis. Sure, Curtis. Go ahead. Yeah. Mike, um, we all know Trump. It's like a chess player, you know. He's usually five or six steps ahead of um, his opponents. And now when he wins again um, in November, I have no doubt that he will, what do you think his next move – what do you think his next move will be when it comes to immigration and and what he can do and what you think he he will do? Well, that's a great question. You know, I had members of Congress who wanted me to work for the Trump administration. I know they plagiarized some of my writing and some of the executive orders. It was interesting. They even plagiarized something I had written for his uh, inaugural. I said I'd love to have a president or at least a politician willing to take a pledge of allegiance to the American people, much the way we say a pledge to our flag and to the republic for which it stands. And if you remember, uh, the president during his inauguration said he pledges allegiance to the American people, or words to that effect. It was kind of stunning. I I said, my God, I've been plagiarized, but by the president, okay, I'll I'll accept that. I can live with it. Um, Really, the key to immigration, if they put me in charge, I could solve the immigration crisis almost overnight. What do you think of that? And it starts with interior enforcement. We only have about 6,000 ICE agents right now, and they're doing all kinds of jobs. They're involved in money laundering and kiddie point and intellectual property theft. That's baloney. We need to have, I would argue, at least 30 to 40,000 immigration agents, size basically the New York City Police Department, and they need support staff and resources. And here's the reason I say it. because, In fact, I spoke about this when they testified before the Immigration Reform Caucus 
five weeks after 9-11, and I called it the Immigration Enforcement Tripod. The inspectors enforced the laws at ports of entry, the Border Patrol between ports of entry. We've always ignored interior enforcement. And in fact, as I noted in my article, interior enforcement is critical <clears throat> for a bunch of reasons, including the so-called war on terror. Uh, and, and that's something that most people don't realize, because what the 9-11 Commission said, that there was many passages about it, but just to pull up this one sentence that I included, uh, because I think it really makes a clear point. Thus, abuse of the immigration system and a lack of interior immigration enforcement were unwittingly working together to support terrorist activity. It would remain largely unknown since no agency of the U.S. government analyzed terrorist travel patterns until after 9-11. This lack of attention meant that critical opportunities to disrupt terrorist travel and therefore deadly terrorist operations were missed. So if you have enough agents, you can go after immigration fraud, which is the key method of entry and embedding for the terrorists. You can do a better job of going after employers who intentionally hire illegal aliens. You can assign more agents to task forces. I was with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force for 10 years. We can certainly put more people into the Joint Terrorism Task Force and the Gang Task Force. So if we had more interior enforcement, that would be the critical issue. Because we know that any alien who's determined to run the border will ultimately succeed. You know, I like to ask people, how many times does an alien have to run the border to get into the United States? And the answer is a very simple answer. One more time than the number of times they get stopped. If they get stopped ten times, they make it on the 11th. If they get stopped five times, they make it on the 6th. Whatever. But at the end of the day, where are they heading? To the interior of the United States. And right now, once they get past the border, they're almost home free. As I explained it when I did my last hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was specifically talking about Obama, <coughs> I said they've essentially fired the starter pistol for aspiring illegal aliens from all over the world. And for those folks, the finish line is the border of the United States. So to change that dynamic, no alien who is illegally present in the United States should be able to go to sleep at night, put his or her head on the pillow, and be confident that tomorrow won't be the day they get caught and, and face consequences for being here illegally. So I think interior enforcement is very critical. There's got to be legislation to end sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities threaten all Americans. Why? Well, you could use New York City as a great example. New York City has the biggest police department in the United States. Why then would El Chapo Guzman, the most prolific and violent drug trafficker in Mexico, use New York City as its hub? Well, Geographically speaking, it's like real estate, location, location, location. New York is by the airports. We have the trains. We have subways. Uh, we have the Canadian border. We have seaports. Wow, we hit the trifecta. New York is a border state. Okay, people don't think of it that way, but it is. We have 50 border states. New York is a big one. It's believed New York has more illegals than anybody else. <clears throat> but why would you come to New York and set up Drug Central here? Because of sanctuary policies. That's why. You eliminate sanctuary policies, suddenly immigration becomes a major weapon. I worked with Al D'Amato to create the aggravated felon reentry law, which makes unlawful reentry for criminal aliens a 20-year felony. Prosecutors love prosecuting it. Now, it used to be a two-year crime with no distinction about criminals. Why bother? Two years in jail, it's a joke. 20 years, wow. And it's a case you can put together in an afternoon. You don't need a lot of evidence. You don't need surveillance. You don't need wiretaps. You got the warm body, you run the fingerprints, 
you find the fact that the guy was previously deported, you get a hold of his file, you match the prints, you can run the system, it shows he never applied for permission to reenter the United States. You've just gathered all the evidence you need to go to a grand jury. How do I know? Because I did it a gazillion times. The grand jury gives you an indictment. You prosecute the guy. Plead not guilty to not being here. I'm here, but I'm not all here. Well, you might not be all here. Maybe you're Joe Biden. But nevertheless, we got you. <laughs> okay? Think how effective that tool is. So you, you bring that kind of pressure to bear. Illegal alien in possession of a firearm. That's a 10-year felony. He doesn't have a gun. He only has bullets. Doesn't matter. Illegal alien in possession of ammunition that crossed the state lines since manufacture. That's also a 10-year felony. Boom. I got you. You don't need a big, long trial. I got the gun. I do a check through ATF. How do I know? I made a lot of those cases. So in an afternoon, I could get a guy and prosecute him for firearm, and now it's a 10-year felony. Why in the world wouldn't you want that legal weapon in your holster? You see? So interior enforcement, end of sanctuary cities, but the president needs to go out there and make a clear case that the immigration laws are not anti-immigrant. We want to protect ourselves from the criminals, the terrorists, dangerous diseases, and <clears throat> we're a country of limitations. And this, again, is where communication is, is failing the president. Just understand this. We've all had to make the party. It's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, it's Hanukkah, it's Passover, it's Easter, it's a wedding, it's a graduation, and we make a party. And then we say, okay, who would we like to invite? You draw up a list. And then you go, holy smoke, we got 83 names. We can't fit them in our backyard. So you start taking people off the list, not because you hate them, but because you don't have the money and you don't have a big enough backyard. True or false? So the point is that it's not about America hating foreigners and we have xenophobia. It's that America is a country of finite resources, just like families have finite resources. How's that for an analogy? That's absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Love As a matter it. of fact, everyone likes to uh, quote the Colossus, the poem that's put on the foot of the Statue of Liberty. And they read yes. the first part. And I'm looking to see if I can, I know I printed it out, but I'm going to paraphrase it. The last part of that poem says, I hang my shining lamp at the door. Meaning there is obviously a door at the gateway coming into the United that's States. Right. And that lamp is there to shine the light upon who is entering. We want to know who's coming through that door. That's an important part of that By the that way, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not all that religious, I confess, but doesn't heaven have a gate too? <laughs> <laughs> Ask Peter Frampton. He's way, still knocking. <laughs> exactly. So, wait a moment. But speaking of, of, the, of the gate, you know, everyone said that the border wall was designed to keep out Mexicans. It's racist. Do you know that the border wall was not designed to keep out anybody? What do you think of that statement? Think about it. If the border wall blocked off ports of entry, then you'd be completely right. Does the border wall block off ports of entry? No. So what do I compare the border wall to? You know, I love analogies. And I think you're going to enjoy my analogy, Andy. You ready for my analogy? Border Shoot. wall is comparable to the velvet rope in the bank that guides the customer to the next available teller. The purpose for the wall is to have an orderly process where everyone who wants to come in and all of the cargo that they want to import goes through a port of entry so that it can be registered and vetted. 
period. So the wall by itself stops no one. It just makes sure that it's an orderly process and that everyone is vetted and their entry is recorded. What is wrong with that? Here's my question, and I use this on Fox and Friends first. And by the way, folks, if you engage your neighbor in a conversation, don't end the conversation on a statement because you're just running your mouth, and it pisses people off. Ask a question at the very end. Questions are kind of sneaky. They don't go away. They rattle around in your head like a marble in a tin can, okay? Because you'll be sitting in traffic, walking your dog, taking a shower, and the questions will pop into your mind, and you'll start to think about it. Questions are critical. The art of the question. So here's my question. Would you get on an airplane if you saw people sneaking past the TSA? Nope. I don't think so. Nope. Okay. But nope. why are we being forced to live among millions of aliens who, snake, who have snuck past the very similar vetting process we conducted ports of entry? Well, How's Mike, we're running out of time. Of that's the question of the day. But, Mike, we're going to have to leave it there. People can find you today at 7 o'clock here on Blog Talk Radio. They can go to your website, which is your name, michaelcutler.net. Do you think after all these years I finally get your website correct? <laughs> just one of these days. Yeah, you, finally, you, just, you sort of almost did. And I write for Front Page Magazine, and I do podcasts with Team DML, dmlnews.com. It's a subscription service, but please check it out. I do at least a couple of weeks for Dennis Michael Lynch at Team DML. All right, Mike. I'll be right. talking with you. You have a good day, and thank you for joining us. Take thank care. Thank you so much for having me. Stay well and safe, everybody. Thanks for having me. All right. My best to your husband, thank by you. the way. Thank you very much, Mike. Take care. All right. We've got uh, a frequent uh, guest here, Hans von Spakowski of the Heritage Foundation. You can find him at heritage.org. And he's a little shameful because he missed our last show, but we'll, we'll, we'll let him ride. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Hans. <laughs> Well, I I appreciate that, and uh, I I don't have a good excuse for that. Some somehow uh, things got screwed up on my schedule, and I and I missed it, so I apologize. So you you guys get uh you get an easy whammy at me for anything I get wrong today, okay? <laughs> well, today's show has been dedicated to, to the memory of 9/11/2001, which we now call Patriots Day, and how appropriate we have you on here because. We're looking at the upcoming election on November 3rd, and we're looking at possibility of massive voter fraud, including the votes being cast by illegal aliens here in the country. And if this is anything that our heroes fought for after 9-11 is to protect our liberties, and we find them now in jeopardy. Yeah, and, and, and to just put a pointer on what you just said, um, the uh, the U.S. attorney for one of the federal districts in North Carolina uh, just indicted uh, 19 aliens for illegally registering and voting in North Carolina. And that, by the way, follows another U.S. attorney in North Carolina uh, two years ago doing exactly the same thing with another set of aliens who were indicted for illegally registering and voting uh, in the state. And uh, you may have seen the Georgia Secretary of State just put out a press release. Uh, they are forwarding the names of 1,000 Georgia voters um, to law enforcement. Why? They voted twice in their June primary in Georgia. Apparently, they voted by absentee ballot, and then showed up at their polling place and cast another vote. 
No, but there's no voter fraud. There was nothing that went on in 2016 <laughs> to prove there was any voter fraud. But wasn't there a woman in Florida that was uh, arrested and charged and found guilty? I think she voted something like three times, if I remember that story correctly. So we saw it in Texas, massive voter fraud that was, you know, they were they were found guilty. We know that they were found guilty people across the United States. But no, this 2016 was perfectly up and up. Now, there were problems all over. And uh, one of the things that we do at the Heritage Foundation where I, I work, as you know, is um, we document proven cases of election fraud. And we're up to almost 1,300 cases. And uh, this is not a comprehensive list. I mean, this is just a sampling of cases from across the country. And a large number of the cases in there are cases involving absentee ballot fraud. And the reason for that is, as I'm sure you know, it's because, uh, look, those are the only kind of ballots that are voted outside the supervision of election officials, outside the observation of poll watchers. And it's therefore much easier to steal, alter, forge, and put pressure on voters in their homes when it comes to absentee ballots. You know, I, I, here in the county I live in, in South Carolina, I have a friend of mine, and she's really, really a, a pit bull when it comes to certain things like this. And in the last month or two, she has come up within our county, in just the area she lives in the county, 1,000 people still on the voter rolls that died. And that's all she's looking at. Yeah. Dead people still registered to vote. And it, not people that just died, say, last week, but people that died like five, six years ago, still on the voter rolls. Now, if you don't vote after so many years in South Carolina, you're supposed to be kicked off the voter rolls, and then you have to re-register. But that's not what is happening. So I'm wondering, who is keeping that person's voter registration active in the state? Who's voting in that dead person's name? Well, part of the problem here, and you're, you've really uh, putting your finger on it, is that unfortunately state election officials all over the country are doing a very poor job of maintaining the accuracy of voter rolls. They're not doing a good job of taking people off the rolls who have died, uh, taking people off who have moved away. Uh, they're also not very good at preventing folks from registering more than once. And Listen, I can't give you the details because it's under an, a press embargo at the moment, but very soon there's going to be a new report coming out that details um, illegal votes all over the country by people who uh, voted more than once, by people who uh, cast votes uh, from the grave and other kinds of problems like that. And, and when this report comes out, people are going to be astonished because the numbers are very large. It's funny. Last night we had our county executive GOP meeting, and they were discussing how to get people to go get out and vote. And here in South Carolina, just I think it was just last week, the Senate the week before did it, and now the House approved extending the absentee voting like we did in the June primary. You don't need to have the excuse that you're working, you're going to be out of the country, you're serving, you can't, or you're disabled. If you didn't fit any of those categories, you were not allowed to vote absentee. But they said, well, we're throwing that out the window. You still are required to have the ballot certified with two signatures. Fine. That's nice and Jim dandy. The question is the intimidation that you mentioned. Um, 
your next door neighbor or your son is telling you this is how you're going to vote and you're a senior citizen and they'll withhold your Social Security or any care for you unless you fill out that ballot. That's a very real problem, the disenfranchised senior citizen and disabled. Well, unfortunately, you're right. In fact, um, that's a common feature in the proven absentee ballot fraud cases that, that we see in the database we maintain. And in fact, there's a great description of this. Uh, one of the cases I've actually written about this, I, I wrote a, a case study about it. It was published just a couple of weeks ago by Heritage. Look, there's this great case. I actually said it's just a terrible case. Um, back in uh, 2004, the Indiana State Supreme Court overturned an election in East Chicago, Indiana. And the reason they overturned it was because of widespread, massive absentee ballot fraud. And one of the things the judges said in that case was the, the voters who were targeted by the vote thieves um, were people who were poor, elderly, um, didn't speak English as their first language. In other words, uh, you know, legal immigrants, uh, people who are citizens now, uh, and, and minority voters people who didn't have a lot of knowledge of the voting process or could be pressured and coerced to vote a particular way. And that's, like I said, that's a common feature, unfortunately, that you find in many of these um, absentee ballot fraud cases. Well, here we're, in our county, we're trying to push for in-person voting. And, you know, I, I've said this on the show, and I think people are starting to listen here. If you can go to Wally World and you're standing within three feet of that cashier and they are taking your credit card or your money and handing you change or your card back, they're not wearing gloves. All they have is a mask. They're manhandling your items, putting them in the, in the bags to put into your cart. They're not being sanitized before they touch the polling place. As soon as you hit the door, you're checked. You have a mask on. You go up to the table to sign in. The pen is sanitized before you are given it to sign. Matter of fact, they don't even touch it once they sanitize it. They just put it on the table, let you pick it up, and clean it once you're done. You go over to the machines. They sanitize the machine after the last person voted. And then when you go up, they just double-check and sanitize it a second time. But so if, if that is far cleaner than Wally World, then why is it an inconvenience to vote in person? Can you well, answer that not, question? And, no, I mean, it's not an inconvenience. In fact, you're exactly right. Um, and uh, look, we know this can be done because, uh, for example, uh, Wisconsin held their primary on April 7th, uh, right at the start of and in the midst of COVID-19. And yeah, a lot of people there voted by mail, but they had polling places open and several hundred thousand uh, residents of Wisconsin voted. They did everything you're talking about. Um, and the conditions were so well done, according to what health experts have recommended, that there have been at least two reports issued, including by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, right, the leading federal agency in the U.S. on COVID-19. And both those reports say, guess what? There was no spike in COVID-19 infections as a result of the election. And, and as you said, uh, listen, I voted in person, actually, about two months ago in town council elections in the state of Virginia, where I live. I, I felt safer in my polling place than when I go to the grocery store because they were taking greater precautions there than at the grocery store. Well, not only that, if you pull up to the polling place and you're disabled, they'll come out to you. 
You don't even that's have to right. leave your car. And, you know, what I no, love that, in South that, Carolina. That, they, that's right. Well, in South Carolina, they changed the way we use the machines. No longer you go up to the machine and it's attached to some sort of an internet or network where it's a possibility of it being hacked. Instead, what they did was you go up to one machine, you pick your ballot, you make all your choices, you hit enter, a paper ballot comes out. You scan it and you make sure that what's printed on there is what you, you wanted. You then go to another machine, which is a scanner. Again, it's not attached to a network or to the internet. You then insert this paper ballot. It gets certified at that point. So there's no way to hack into this machine, but yet we still have an existence in many states, machines that are attached to networks or Internet that can be hacked. Yeah, and that's, that is a mistake. And uh, more and more states, are in fact, are doing exactly what uh, you've seen in South Carolina. In fact, Georgia this year, uh, Georgia used to have all electronic machines. Um, they switched exactly the system you're talking about, an electronic voting machine that prints out a ballot that you then go scan. And that, that really is one of the best uh, methods and one of the easiest methods of, of voting because you've got a firm audit trail. If there's ever any question about you know the software or the, the machines themselves, and at the same time, you know, the advantage of the machines over just a simple paper ballot is that um, uh, folks who are disabled, people, for example, who are blind, they can still vote by themselves without assistance uh, using those electronic voting machines. And that's actually, uh, that's a good thing. Well, that is a very, very good thing. You know, they're, they're talking about this election being a tight election. Uh, I don't see it. Not when you put your finger on the pulse of the American people. I think with these Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots, uh, I think the worm has turned on the left. So I think we're going to be pretty safe if if we don't have the massive fraud we're fearing with absentee and mail-in ballots. But should it be a very close election, it's then supposed to go to, do I have this correctly? If it's a tie, it goes to the House? Well, there's two different situations here. Um, if if you if you uh, want to be president, you have to win 270 electoral college votes. Okay. Um, if we had a situation, which I don't think we will, that uh, one of the two major candidates didn't win 270 electoral college votes, I mean, maybe there's some third party candidate that actually pull some away. Uh, yeah, then it would go to the House of Representatives, and the House chooses who is the president, vice president, and each state gets one vote. So what that means is there's a vote within the uh, delegation to the House of each state, and whoever wins the majority, uh, that state's vote is cast for that candidate. But the more likely situation is one where um, neither candidate has won 270 electoral college votes, but that's because there are still still several states outstanding where there is uh, litigation or uh, they don't know who won uh, because of problems with the election. If the outcome of the presidential race has not been determined by January 20th, Inauguration Day, which is the end of the president's term, there's a federal statute that says that the acting president of the United States shall be the Speaker of the United States House 
Speaker shall remain the acting president until the outcome of the election has been determined. So it may not necessarily be Nancy Pelosi. It may be whoever had been elected in on November 3rd. That's right. Although uh, you and I both know, <laughs> unless she decides to suddenly retire, it's highly probable she will be the speaker. And in her last election two years ago, um, she got 86% of the vote. And there haven't mm. really, I haven't seen any moves to um, uh, change her out as the speaker. So it's, I think it's highly likely that she will once again be the speaker of the House uh, when Congress starts its new term at the beginning of January. Now, isn't there under the federal election law something called safe harbor that all ballots must be certified 39 days after the general election? And if they're not, they're, they're not accepted, they're, they're thrown out? Well, there are deadlines, including the fact that, um, remember, uh, you know, when we vote in November, we're actually voting for a slate of electors in the Electoral College. And the Electoral College is supposed to meet uh, at the beginning of December. And that's where the electors actually cast their votes for um, uh, president, vice president in their states. Um, that once they do that, um, the vote is supposed to be totaled up and shipped to the house by um, the state and the, the problems that could be caused is if uh, the outcome in a state hasn't been determined by the time the electors are supposed to vote and the states start missing uh, their deadlines. I, you know, I, I, I don't think there's any way Congress would throw out um, a state's results uh, because they're late. But the problem will be if states don't send them results because they haven't been able to determine the outcome of the race in their state. Well, how would this then play in with the national popular vote referendums that have been going on in multiple states? If the if this state has not certified all the votes, would that state then say, instead of worrying about the votes, we're just going to say the national popular vote said and this is how we vote? No, because the the national popular vote plan that you're talking about this is a this is a uh, this is something that's been uh, being pushed around the country. Uh, Fifteen states and the District of Columbia have have now adopted it. The national uh, popular vote plan is a state compact. The state compact is a contract between states, and the states that have passed this compact basically what the compact says is once enough states have passed the compact that represent 270 electoral college votes goes into effect. Uh, they don't have 270 electoral college votes. Uh, they won't have them um, at this election. So the NPV is not going to go into effect uh, after the November election. Well, now there was also thrown out the idea that if there is no clear winner that, or we have problems, drastic problems with these mail-in ballots, that there would be a presidential redo? Is that even possible? No, no, that's, that's, that's not possible. Um, I, well, it, look, it's not impossible, but it, 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 there's no way that a national election would be redone. There is, a, there is a very remote possibility that the election in one particular state could be redone. I mean, we've, 
we've had many instances in our history where judges have ordered a new election uh, because of fraud or other problems uh, at the local and state level. In fact, we, we just had that happen in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, where they recently had a municipal election, all-male election, had so many problems uh, with the election, including four locals getting charged with uh, criminal uh, absentee ballot fraud, that a judge has ordered a new election. But that's never happened on in a presidential race that a state was ordered to rerun the presidential election in that state, and I, I, I just don't think that's likely. Hans, this is um, yeah. the co-host, C.S. Aren't there cases in court right now pertaining to this massive um, voter ballot mail-out? And yes. And, if we should yeah. hear from them, will that be, I mean, will, will it stop those um, states who are already or about to implement this? Well, what's going on right now is, uh, look, I've been in the, election field for a very long time. I've never seen as many lawsuits filed before an election as I've seen this year. At at the last count, there were upwards of 160 lawsuits have been filed. Now, most of them have been filed by the left side of the political aisle. A few have been filed on the right side by the, the um, the Trump campaign. But what these lawsuits, what most, what the vast majority of the lawsuits are doing is they're trying to change state election rules so that, uh, first of all, uh, they get rid of um, any states uh, that would like South Carolina that requires an excuse to vote by absentee ballot. They're trying to force election officials to actually simply mail a ballot to um, all uh, registered voters. And they're also trying to get rid of the safety protocols that we have on absentee ballot, such as requirements that a witness you know, uh, uh, witness your signature, you the voter, and then sign the ballot. They're trying to get rid of uh, voter ID requirements in the, in the few states that have them. Uh, they're trying to make all kinds of changes like that. And at the moment, um, that all of this is kind of still up in the air. Some states have, have changed their rules, but in other states, it's still being litigated. And we don't, uh, we don't really know what, what's going to happen. I mean, to give you an example of that, uh, three weeks ago, a lawsuit was filed in Alabama by the ACLU trying to get a judge to order the state to quit requiring witness signatures on absentee ballots. And that's still, uh, that's still being litigated in the courts. Well, they're trying that here in South Carolina also, um, and I have a funny feeling the court case is going to get kicked out uh, because, unfortunately, the two litigants that brought it before the state uh, system uh, actually posted on their Facebook page showing them out there uh, dining with friends and this and that. But they're, they're going to be so <laughs> – their health is at risk. I mean, they have underlying health conditions, blah, 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 but they're not wearing masks. They're out in public in restaurants, cavorting around at bars, uh, yeah, but they want no witnesses and a mail-in ballot. I don't think that lawsuit <laughs> in great. South Carolina, a solid red state, is going to go very far. But this is what we're facing with. This is the type of litigation that is going out there. A lot of it is just nonsensical. Yeah, 
Well, it is, but there's a real push to to do this. The other thing that's that's going on is, and look, this is this is a problem everyone should realize. Um, look, New York had its primary on June 23rd. Unwisely tried to push as many people, I think, to, to I think unwisely to to vote through absentee ballots. As a result, they had a massive increase in absentee ballots, and that led to uh, several problems. First of all, it took them six weeks, six weeks to count the ballot. At the end of that, litigation was filed, and the outcomes are still being disputed in some of the races. Why? Well, because election officials rejected one of every five absentee ballots that was sent back to them by election officials. And that illustrates one of the other big problems that the left just doesn't want to talk about with regard to absentee ballots is uh, your ballot is much more likely to be rejected if you vote by mail rather than in person. And that's because uh, people make mistakes. You know, they forget to sign the ballot. They don't fill in all the information on the absentee ballot they're required to. The post office doesn't deliver their ballot back in time, and sometimes the post office doesn't postmark the ballot envelope. So when election officials get it, they reject it because they don't know if it was mailed you know, by the end of election day. And because of that, uh, the rejection rate is much higher for absentee ballots. So the more local election officials try to force people to vote by mail, the more voters are going to be disenfranchised and their ballots aren't going to count. Well, you know, another thing that they've been trying to do are these kiosks uh, sitting on the corners, the sidewalks, uh, where they can drop their ballot into the kiosk. Now, that went out the window here in South Carolina. This is no, 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 no. Because when I wrote to my state senators and I said, listen, not a good idea what these individuals are proposing. How do you protect those kiosks and prevent them from being ripped off? I mean, you got ATMs that are being smashed and grabbed. How are you going to protect these these kiosks? I don't think you can. Well, you can't. And look, it's one thing to have uh, a kiosk or a drop box in a county facility, a county government building where there's 24-hour security, and the box is 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 being monitored 24 hours a day. But to put one out on the street where that is unsecured and unmonitored, as you say, is a very bad idea. Well, in most county offices or parish offices are closed because of the virus. So where else would they put the kiosk if they can't secure it in those buildings because they're not open to the public? So you've got to catch 22. Right, right. No, I, I, I agree. So I think you've got that exactly right. But well, when I look to see some of the stunts that they have been pulling, I just say, keep on going at it. Because if you look, I, I hear more and more people that are Republicans and conservatives and even independents saying, I'm not going to trust my ballot to the mail. I'm not going to trust an absentee ballot from being counted. I'm going to show up in person. And the people I hear saying, oh, well, I'm not going to go anywhere because I'm afraid I'm going to get sick are from the left. So I, I think it's going to backfire on them you know what is your opinion on that well i think well, I, without even needing to make this partisan i i think it's going to backfire on anybody who a, any of the folks who are pushing people to vote by mail and people who to, to vote by mail rather than going into polling place it's going to backfire on them because their chances the chances of their vote not counting is going to be much 
higher. Uh, they're better off going into the polling place. And, and look, what people out there, out there ought to be doing, folks listen to your show, is election officials are making these decisions right now. Right now they're deciding are we going to have how many polling places are going to have open? Are we going to have fewer open? Are we going to have the same number we usually do? Uh, and folks should be calling. Call their county election department and say, look, you need to have all the polling places open. We demand the right to vote in person. We do not want to trust our ballot to the Postal Service to deliver or some stranger who shows up at our front door and offers to maybe perhaps deliver our mail. But uh, folks need to be lobbying their county election departments right now because right now the decisions are being made about this. Well, that brings up another point of vote harvesting. A lot of people don't understand that in their state there may be vote harvesting. I was shocked to find out that an individual in South Carolina can collect up to 12 ballots and turn it in. That's vote harvesting. California, we saw massive vote harvesting out there in the last election. Yeah, and it's a really bad idea for uh, states to allow that. What vote harvesting means for us to understand it is – Look, when you vote by absentee ballot, you can, you can mail your ballot back. You can hand deliver it to election officials at the county, county elections department, or usually a member of your family can uh, hand deliver it for you. But in uh, states like North Carolina, for example, um, strangers are not – third parties are not allowed to pick up and deliver your ballot. Uh, unfortunately, in states that have legalized vote harvesting, they basically say – Anybody can show up at your front door and offer to deliver your ballot. Well, what does that do? It means that uh, candidates, campaign staffers, um, party activists, political guns for hire, people who have a stake in the outcome of the election are getting their, able to get their hand on something very valuable, your ballot. And you're, you're trusting them to deliver your ballot on time without – opening it up and potentially throwing it out if they don't like who you voted for or potentially changing your ballot and doing other things that they shouldn't be doing. And that's just a, that's just a very bad idea. As you know, that's what happened in North Carolina two years ago in the ninth congressional district of North Carolina. Remember the election there was overturned because a longtime political consultant there, he, he was working for the Republican candidate in that election, but he'd worked, previously for Democratic candidates, was engaged in illegal vote harvesting where they were doing everything from forging signatures, forging witness signatures, changing ballots, filling out ballots uh, for voters instead of the voters filling them out. And they did that enough that it, uh, the State Board of Elections said the election has to be overturned. Well, I'm looking at the clock. We're down to our last five minutes, and it's always so much fun to speak with you because you are so knowledgeable. People can find you over at theheritage.org. I just want to ask one last question before I let you go. Did I read the statistic correctly that in 2016 uh, there were 28 million ballots just never made it to the election boards? I know there were various instances where military ballots just seemingly just fell overboard as it was being transported to the uh, combat and, and tour zones overseas. But was, is it really that high? 2016 saw as many as 28 million ballots just go missing? 
No, it wasn't one election. It was four elections. The uh, U.S. Election Assistance Commission files a report with Congress every two years on the last federal election using data they've collected from the states. And those four reports indicate that in the last four federal elections, so we're talking about 2018, 2016, 2014, 2012, um, 28 million absentee or mail-in ballots were listed by the states as unknown. And what unknown means is is they put those ballots in the mail to send to voters and then never heard another word about them. So they don't really know what happened to them. And look, it's possible that they got to voters who'd requested absentee ballots and the the voters decided, "Eh, I really don't want to vote. I'm just going to toss it out. That maybe that's what happened. But the point is the states don't know what happened to those ballots. And that's a lot of, Again, a very valuable commodity floating around, uh, millions, literally, uh, of, of ballots that could change the outcome of an election. Scary, scary thought. Well, Hans, it is so much fun always to speak with you. We definitely have to have you back on. So I'm done whipping you with the wet noodle <laughs> all over, all forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> but I look forward to speaking with you again and uh God bless you for the hard work you do. Again, you can be found at heritage.org. Yeah, thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, Check him out, Hans von Spakovsky over at heritage.org. Curtis, I'm looking at what our schedule is coming up, and next week uh, we are going to have two fantastic people, Dr. Ken Hansen. He's the author of a book called Who's Holy Land? And he puts forth Mm. the arguments for why... Uh, Israel is a Jewish state and should remain and is is properly Jewish land or if it is Palestinian land by what history claims to be. So it is an interesting argument he puts forth on both sides. And I can guess you know which side he ends up landing on. Uh, that's going to be followed by um, Holocaust survivor Trudy Strobel and author Judy Sadin, who worked as a playwright and poet. And they wrote this beautiful book called Stitched and Sewn, The Life-Saving Art of Holocaust Survivor Trudy Strobel. And I've just begun reading it, and it is a fascinating book, both authors, along with the subject of the second book. Uh, And then the following week on the 26th, uh, you're going to give me the names and times of everyone for that, but Congressman Ted Yoho, uh, you remember him yep. as <laughs> the famous pissing contest between him and AOC. So Ted Yoho oh, is going to be joining us again on the uh, 25th. Um, but that's all I got for now, Curtis, unless you have something to add for the last minute. Well, just take time today to remember 9-11 and hope that we can move forward as a country and be as united as we were for those few days after 9-11, that we can be that way in the near future. That's it, and have a nice weekend. Well, that's all we have for now, folks. I want to thank you for uh, joining us. We will be back here uh, next weekend. As I said, we've got an excellent show uh, dealing with Israel and the whole along with great authors and everything else. So until then, I want to leave you. um, Oh, good Lord. Here we go. Leave you with our closing when the roll is called up yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless, and remember those we lost 19 years ago today. Oh.
Thank you.